Good afternoon, everyone. Happy Monday. This meeting will come to order. Welcome to the January 29th, 2024 regular meeting of the Land Use and Transportation Committee of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. I am Supervisor Mirna Melgar, Chair of the Committee, joined by Board of Supervisors President Aaron Peskin and Vice Chair Dean Preston. The committee clerk is John Carroll. I would also uh, like to acknowledge uh, Jaime Echeverri uh, at SFGov TV for staffing this meeting. Mr. Clerk, do you have any announcements? Yes, thank you, Madam Chair. Please ensure that you've silenced your cell phones and other electronic devices you may have brought with you into the chamber today. If you have any documents to include as part of any of the files on today's agenda, you should submit them to me over the rail. Same thing with comment cards. We now have blue comment cards available in a hopper up front. If you want to fill one of those out and leave it on the front rail, I'll pick it up when I have a moment during the meeting. Public comment will be taken on each item on today's agenda. When your item of interest comes up and public comment is called, please line up to speak along your right-hand side of the room. I'm pointing it out with my left hand. Alternatively, you may submit your public comment in writing in either of the following ways. You may email them to me at j-o-h-n period c-a-r-r-o-l-l at sfgov.org. Or you may submit your written comments via U.S. Postal Service to our office in City Hall. One, Dr. Carlton B. Goodlett Place, room 244, San Francisco, California, 94102 is the address. If you submit public comment in writing, I will forward your comments to the supervisors on this committee and also include your comments in the official file upon which you are commenting. And finally, Madam Chair, items acted upon today are expected to appear on the Board of Supervisors agenda of February 6, 2024, unless otherwise stated. Thank you very much, Mr. Clerk. Uh, please call items one through three together. Agenda item numbers one, two, and three are three ordinances accepting irrevocable offers of public infrastructure associated with the subphases of the Treasure Island and Yerba Buena Island project. Dedicating the infrastructure to public use, designating public infrastructure for street and roadway purposes as applicable, accepting the public infrastructure for city maintenance and liability purposes subject to specified limitations, establishing official right-of-way widths and street grades, regulating the width of sidewalks throughout the project area, delegating limited authority to the public works director to accept specified infrastructure, acknowledging the Treasure Island Development Authority's acceptance of certain improvements on portions of Yerba Buena Island and Treasure Island, including ferry terminal improvements and the authority's acceptance of the improvements for maintenance and liability purposes, and delegating to the Treasure Island Development Authority, various powers related to acceptance of public parks and open space improvements as part of the development of the Treasure Island and Yerba Buena Island project pursuant to a disposition and development agreement, the development agreement and a special use district. Oh, and one more thing, Madam Chair, each of these items is agendized as a committee report and can be sent to the Board of Supervisors for consideration at tomorrow's meeting. Thank you, Mr. Clerk. Uh, so uh, we welcome Anne-Marie Rogers uh, with Tida. Um, and we also have Madison Tam here with Supervisor Dorsey's office in case anyone has any questions or comments uh, for the supervisor. So uh, welcome, Ms. Rogers. Go ahead. Thank you very much. Uh, it is a pleasure to be back before the board. This is the first time in my role as Deputy Director at Tida. And I'm here today representing a team of staff who've been hard at work to spec uh, build and inspect the high-quality infrastructure that paves the way for 8,000 homes on Treasure Island and Yerba Buena Islands. Uh, representing the private developer is Magda Mishka and Sean Brown. They're with TICD, who is responsible for building the $2.5 billion worth of infrastructure that the city will own. 
and leading the city's multi-agency team, uh, Denny Fan from Public Works regrets that he is unable to be here today. So there are three ordinances. They are a mouthful. I will not repeat those. Uh, <coughs> Director Beck was before you in November, and since then the home building has continued. And this is very notable achievement given the current economy. On this slide, you can see all of the production, the 229 units complete to 745 units that are under construction, scheduled for completion by 2025, and the 360 units that are in planning. To advance this housing, a new system of infrastructure support has been built. So the first item before you, the city's acceptance. Uh, the outline area shows uh, what will be accepted for all the streets, sidewalks, and utilities. I'll talk about a couple of particularly notable major systems first. Uh, this is a switchyard and electrical system. This completely new system will ensure green, stable energy power from the PUC. And here are uh, yeah, the water tanks uh, that are coming, um, which are very big and on top of Yerba Buena. For those curious, this is a map of the water source from Hetch Hetchy through to Yerba Buena, and this drinking water network has a companion of recycled water uh, under all the streets that will be ready for connection to the PUC's new wastewater treatment plant under construction. This will be a purple pipe system um, enabling recycled water for landscaping, irrigation, etc., and very little discharge. Super green, these are the sort of features that make the development the highest ranked lead project for neighborhood design in the world. Uh, new electrical, water, wastewater, and recycled water all underlie the streets and sidewalks of phase one. So let's see what it looks like in some photos, which are pretty. Um, this is the phase one area as it looked under the, after the geotech work had been completed. The entire area was stabilized for streets and buildings in 2020. And here's the same area this year. The streets and underground utilities are complete and the buildings are rising. At night, this new infrastructure is really visible under the brand new streetlights the city will own. And here's McCullough Road, a city street connecting uh, to the bridge. Looking at the ground level, you can see we have street lights, sidewalks, shared streets, bicycle paths, street trees, and landscaping. Whenever you see all of this valuable infrastructure, you um, can be assured that all of the relevant city agencies have reviewed, inspected, and determined the readiness for ownership. This is a complex process that public works oversees with specialists across uh, many departments. Uh, working to review that the work is consistent with this board's adopted plans prior to permitting. So this is the first ordinance. The second pertains to infrastructure which will be owned by TIDA, a department that falls under the city administrator's office. The TIDA infrastructure includes the TIDA-owned lands, such as parks, minor street furniture, paths to parks, and most notably, the ferry infrastructure shown here. Here's what it looked like under construction and finally built again with the pretty lights at night. And then here are the stormwater wetlands in Buckeye Grove. Um, that is the green infrastructure treatment system. This is some of the street furniture. And just like the city infrastructure, these assets go through the same complete process overseen by Public Works at the Infrastructure Task Force. 
These elements will be owned by TIDA, so the TIDA board has already taken acceptance action. The ordinance before you would have the board acknowledge their action. And now the third and final ordinance. <laughs> uh, this is the one that would shorten the process for acceptance for one type of asset, parks. Uh, because the public access to these lands awaits for final action by both TIDA board and this board of supervisors, it can be difficult for the public to see a park behind a fence for a long time, waiting for the process to conclude. The premise of this ordinance is that because parks must be built to specifications already established by this board through the DA, the DDA, and many other documents, the board could delegate this final acceptance to the title board. And this would have some real world effects, speeding public access to the lands. So these are looking at some potential dates um, for two upcoming parks that would mirror what occurred with a recently opened park called The Rocks on Yerba Buena. This park was ready for completion and acceptance just as summer arrived. The 30-day hold expired at the end of budget season and the board picked up the item as soon as it could in September. So while uh, with the remaining readings, mayor signature and waiting for the effective date, that put the earliest park opening uh, at November 4th. We have two parks that could run into the same timeline again this summer. If the board would choose to delegate authority, these parks could open in mid-June instead of in the fall, giving the public access uh, over the full summer. Uh, more immediately, the Hilltop Park that holds the very exciting Sugimoto sculpture shown here, Pono Infinity, uh, looks like it will be ready to begin acceptance in March. If the delegation's ordinance passed, this Hilltop Park could open immediately after TIDA board action in March. If it does not change, the earliest date would be the end of June. And here's some other parks uh, that could potentially benefit from the ordinance should you choose uh, to pass that. So with that, it concludes staff presentation. We're available for <coughs> questions, should you have any. With Supervisor Dorsey's aid, Madison Tam. Okay, thank you, Ms. Rogers. It's nice to have you in this position. Thank you. Uh, Ms. Tam? Yeah, thank you, and good afternoon, members of the Land Use Committee. Uh, Madison Tim, on behalf of Supervisor Dorsey, just wanting to add a little bit to um, Anne Marie's very thorough presentation. As you saw on the slides, the island is really going through a quite incredible transformation that has been a long time in the making. And while these items are largely housekeeping, it is an important part of both keeping the redevelopment of the island moving forward and providing for the existing residents. Last weekend, TIDA, OEWD, the SFCTA, One Treasure Island, and the Supervisor's Office hosted an open house on the island where residents could learn more about the exciting new infrastructure and benefits on the way. And there was incredible excitement surrounding the new parks especially. And this streamlined process for accepting new parks on the island will be of incredible benefit to those residents and the hundreds of other mostly low-income residents on the island that have been waiting for years for these public benefits. As you saw on the last few slides, parks can sit finished, uh, waiting for the city process to catch up, leaving residents to wonder why they cannot access them. We've actually seen this in other parts of our district as well, and we've seen that this can be really damaging to cities, uh, to residents' trust in city government when they see projects that appear finished waiting uh, for the city process. And every time we go out to the island, it's really amazing to see how much progress is made. We go out there uh, several times a month, and it's like an entirely new neighborhood every time we go out there. So let's keep this progress going, and Supervisor Dorsey kindly asks that you send all three items forward with a positive recommendation as a committee report. Thanks. Thank you, Ms. Tam. Um, President Peskin. Thank you, Madam Chair, and thank you to the 
Treasure Island Development Authority and to Supervisor Dorsey's office for bringing these three items forward. Um, I, I've been out there to the island and uh, was mightily impressed by all the work that was done. And I went there on the ferry and saw the new ferry facility and am very uh, pleased about the progress. It was, I have a few questions just about the park um, aspect of what's before us um, and share the urgency of getting uh, the parks open. Um, but wanted to drill down just into some of the practical aspects um, like park staffing and hours and safety concerns in what has historically been a pretty isolated neighborhood that uh, is there going to be lighting there? I know that we've had power outages on Treasure Island um, and whether there's backup power for lighting if it's there, what the schedule for you know cleaning and maintenance is and whether there are enough financial resources to do that and whether you've even gotten to the point of doing what Reckon Park does here on the mainland relative to park reservation systems and how that works and do residents have the ability to you know, schedule picnics or birthday parties? Uh, are there fees associated with that? Is there prioritization given for local people? I, I'm just kind of throwing out what's coming into my head about just how this works given that Tida is not the Recreation Parks Department, doesn't have a history doing this. That's a very good observation. And um, yeah, we would love to talk to you about all those things today or whenever it is convenient uh, at a very high level. Uh, maybe I'll start with just um, the electrical service that I showed you. Uh, the switchyard uh, does improve the electrical service to the entire agent, to the entire islands, uh, both the current Navy housing as well as all the new housing. And then the, some of the structures that I showed you then are just serving the new developments. The parks are obviously in all of these new areas that will be either owned by the city or by TIDA as an agency of the city, which is also confusing to me, but uh, we'll let uh, the city attorney explain that if you have questions there. So <clears throat> the electrical system uh, in these new parks is good. There is lighting and the TIDA board is hearing um, both a parks ordinance that would establish the rules. So uh, until the TIDA board acts, I don't know exactly what those are, but they do mirror rec park rules. It's based upon the existing parks code. And so the, these are parks that do not have um, picnic areas for reservation. There are large scenic parks. The one on uh, Hilltop Park is more like Twin Peaks. Uh, and so it's currently proposed to be open from a sunrise to sunset. Um, but the TIDA board will set the final rules um, through their recommendation of an ordinance that would then come before this board. And relative to staffing and maintenance resources? Yeah, so as part of uh, the development agreement, there's a, a really robust uh, like schedule for performance and for operations that uh, TIDA has, and we've been sharing that with the TIDA board. We'd be happy to come by and make presentations for um, this first phase, the care and maintenance. So it will be uh, overseen by TIDA. We are looking at work ordering some support from Rec Park because they already have a lot of expertise. Uh, and we have an on-island uh, nonprofit and partner, uh, Rubicon, who does a lot of work job training for uh, the community. And so they'll be doing the on-the-ground work. In fact, they've already been doing a lot of the on-the-ground landscaping for the native areas, and they've developed a great deal of expertise in caring for native plants uh, over the past few years. So we feel very good and confident about that existing relationship. 
So insofar as Reckon Park doesn't have jurisdiction over these parks and they're not Reckon Park parks, are you saying that you're going to use the park code until the TIDA board adopts their own regulations? I didn't say that, but that is actually correct. The current parks code would maintain. What I was trying to say was that uh, in either February or March, the TIDA board will consider their own parks code ordinance uh, and so they might make some minor tweaks that are specific to their parks. And then that ordinance would amend city municipal code and would come before this body. Until that happens, though, the existing uh, parks code, as you guessed, does govern that area. Got it. And then I have a larger kind of policy thing relative to the way the third item is written, which maybe is just... I'm always very careful when the board delegates authority um, because sometimes those things have come back in the future, we've seen them and was the board delegated authority 30 years ago and then you go, oh my God, how did this happen? And people who are accountable to the electorate are not in charge and there's been many instances of that in my time on the board of supervisors. Um, and what makes, I worry about a couple of three things in here. One is it doesn't say that we are delegating authority to de dedicate parks pursuant to the development agreement. If it said pursuant to the development agreement, there would be something, the development agreement was approved, everybody knows what it is. Um, and the second language in here that makes me a little nervous is it says, the Board of Supervisors also delegates to the authority the power to dedicate park improvements to public use, designate them for park and or open space purposes as appropriate. So I would be very upset if in five or 10 years, a piece of land that was in the development agreement supposed to be a park, we had delegated authority and the title commission said, actually, we're not gonna use it as a park anymore and we have this delegated authority, we can do what we want. So I think if this were changed to say, pursuant to the development agreement, that would, make me feel better, or there may be other language changes that don't just m mean complete abdication by this board and its delegation. The other thing is, insofar as all of these park acceptances seem to be about to happen in the near term, another way of getting around, uh, going about this is putting a sunset date on that delegation. Um, so I want to throw that out for my colleagues so I would have talked to about it, but I'm not allowed to because that would violate the Brown Act, so I'm talking about it now. But I think if we said that um, this was time limited so that in the future, in 10 and 20 years, when other land use changes are coming, that there's either another delegation or a discussion. I think either one of those options is very valid. I'll just note for the benefit of the board that the current development program of Treasure Island is expected to go until about 2042. So it's quite a while, and uh, so some of the biggest parks will be at the end, but you could certainly uh, take either path today. You could also continue that one item to allow for uh, more discussion with staff, certainly, and we could talk about the implications with the city attorney and think it over and not have to try to move it tomorrow. Okay, uh, this is agendized as a committee report. Yeah, it would be great if the first two, the infrastructure acceptance, could happen to make those part of the city system, but we, on the delegation, uh, if that one would be continued, we could work on the issues. But that, that doesn't mess you up. 
just doing it one, I think, one I more think, week? I think a week is, uh, I'll defer to you guys, it would, a week delay doesn't seem like the biggest deal. Uh, we're looking right now at a bit a March, mid-March, I think March 17th opening date. So it is cutting it a little bit close with the final read, the 10 day for the mayor's signature, but it's much different than the end of June. So if it gives the board satisfaction that uh, these concerns have been addressed, I think a week is better than the end of June. Okay. Thank you so much, Ms. Rogers. Uh, let's, if uh, there's no other comments or questions, let's go to public comment on this item, please, Mr. Carroll. Thank you, Madam Chair. We'll now take public comment on agenda item numbers one, two, and three. If you have comment on these items, please come forward to the lectern that I'm pointing out with my left hand. Delaying for a moment to see if we have any speakers. Madam Chair, it appears we have no speakers. Okay, public comment on this item is, these three items is now closed. So I would like to uh, make a motion that we uh, send items one and two uh, with a positive recommendation as a committee report to the board tomorrow. Um, and then we continue item three uh, until next week. On the motion offered by Chair Melgar that agenda item numbers one and two be sent to the Board of Supervisors with a recommendation of land use and committee, uh, land use and transportation committee as a committee report. And then that agenda item number three be continued to next week's land use meeting. Vice Chair Preston. Preston, aye. Member Peskin. Aye. Peskin, aye. Chair Melgar. Aye. Melgar, aye. Madam Chair, there are three ayes. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, let's go to item number four now, please, Mr. Clerk. Agenda item number four is an ordinance amending the planning and administrative codes to correct typographical errors, update outdated cross-references, and make non-substantive revisions to clarify or simplify code language, affirming the planning department's sequel determination, making findings of consistency with the general plan and the eight priority policies of planning code section 101.1 and adopting other related findings. Okay, thank you. Uh, so I thought we were gonna get a presentation by Mr. Aaron Stark, but I see we're gonna get a presentation by Ms. Audrey Merloni. Thank you, Chair Melgar. Audrey Merloni, Planning Department staff. <clears throat> this ordinance was originally before you last week, where we realized that due to the passage of several other ordinances since the drafting of this legislation, further technical amendments were needed where the ordinance has become out of date with the planning code. So I have that um, updated ordinance here um, for anybody who would like a hard copy. We've worked with the city attorney over the last week to make those changes and are asking you today to accept the technical amendments and move the ordinance forward to the full board with a positive recommendation. Again, this ordinance is sponsored by the Planning Commission and will fix issues like grammatical errors, unintentional cross-references, and accidental additions and deletions that undermine the legitimacy and enforceability of the planning code. All of the proposed changes and amendments are considered non-substantive to the policies and the implementation of the code. Obviously, I'm here and available for questions. Thank you. Uh, President Peskin. Thank you, Chair Melgar. Um, so last week, I raised some questions. I think last week they were on page 26, but in the amended version that's before us, pages 24 and 25, about Article 11, and so that insofar as this ordinance got changed because of other ordinances that came along. Um, and I got your email, Audrey, uh, and then had a subsequent conversation with um, Aaron Starr from the planning department. 
and I haven't quite figured out, I, I introduced a ordinance several months ago about Article 10, Article 11 signage, which is pending in this committee, which I think based on the recommendations of the Planning Commission, um, I need to have some conversations with Mr. Hillis and the department, but in the interim, rather than take, putting stuff in and then taking it out, I think the easiest way until we get our hands around this piece of legislation that I introduced that went to the Planning Commission that's now pending here is if on page 24, section 1110G sub five, we take out the words business signs or and make the same change on 1111.1 section four, take out the word business signs or, and then when we figure out what we're doing with 1011 and signage, it may well go back in, but rather than putting it in and then taking it out and putting it back in, let's just take it out right now. The commission would be supportive of that amendment. Is that okay? Madam Deputy City. Deputy City Attorney Ann Pearson, I want to make sure I understand the proposal. Um, Supervisor Peskin, there is legislation that has been introduced that has not yet been passed that would make the change that you are proposing here. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, this is uh, this is the conversation Aaron and I were having when you were talking to Sunny in my office. But I think the easiest thing to do right now, relative to a code clarification, is to just take that out here. Technically, though, that would not be a cl code clarification because that the code has not yet been amended. It's been introduced but not amended. So the change you're proposing, if I understand it correctly, would be um, ahead of the enactment of that legislation. Is that right? Well, this is there. I mean, this is an underlined italics. It's not in there now. I would say both are correct. Um, <laughs> it, is, it is correct that it is not in there now. It is a clarification. So it is the way that the department has already been treating um, business signs and awnings in conservation districts and for historic buildings. But it, was, it needed to be clarified in the code because it was not clear otherwise. Um, so I would leave it to the city attorney as to whether or not taking out something that was a clarification because it wasn't there before, but it was how we were implementing the code, whether we would change how we implement the code if the word business sign is gone or not. I, I don't think it would necessarily change how we implement the code. It would just be um, a little bit amalgamous until we have clear direction through another ordinance. If it would be okay for you to return to this, it would be helpful for me to speak with planning about it to see how all these moving pieces interact. Okay, uh, so uh, if there are no other questions or comments, colleagues, uh, let's take public comment on it. Um, if we still need a little time, uh, we can come back to this item before we vote uh, and go on to the next item. Uh, but let's, let's go ahead and take public comment now, please, Mr. Clerk. Thank you, Madam Chair. Does anyone in the chamber have public comment on this agenda item number four related to code corrections? If so, please come forward to the lectern at this time. And Madam Chair, it appears we have no speakers. Okay. With that, public comment on this item is now closed. Uh, why don't we put this on ice for a little bit uh, until later on in this meeting and see if we can uh, come up with some consensus as to uh, moving forward on it. Um, and. Uh, 
Then let's go to item number five. Agenda item number five is an ordinance amending the fire code to provide fire protection standards for the charging and storage of lithium ion ba batteries used in powered mobility devices such as electric bikes, scooters, skateboards, and hoverboards. Prohibit use of damaged lithium ion batteries in such devices. Prohibit use of lithium ion batteries assembled or reconditioned using cells removed from used batteries in such devices and require the fire department to conduct an informational campaign, affirming the planning department's secret determination and directing the clerk of the board of supervisors to forward the ordinance to the California Building Standards Commission upon final passage. Okay, uh, and we welcome our fire marshal, Ken Coughlin. Uh, before we turn it over to you, uh, fire marshal, uh, President Peskin, do you have any remarks? I do, thank you, uh, Chair Melgar, um, and uh, thank you to the two of you and the other members of the board for giving me the opportunity to return this to the Land Use Committee. As you'll recall, I introduced this um, legislation uh, several months ago um, back in November uh, after a um, increasing number of uh, fires throughout the city and county of San Francisco that um, are associated with battery fires, um, specifically lithium-ion battery fires. Uh, this started for me um, in 2020 uh, when an individual charging uh, five uh, or four, I forget how many devices, uh, in his apartment in the Golden Gateway uh, apartments on the northern waterfront um, had a fire that Fortunately, did not kill or injure anybody, but did displace some 15 units of housing. Um, and that got me to start conversations um, with the fire department and to see what was happening in New York City. Uh, the numbers here that were presented uh, at the Land Use Committee when we uh, heard this back in December are uh, very concerning. The number of fires grew from 12 to 24 to, or 25 to 36 to 58 uh, to last year over 60 uh, and tragically um, our first death in San Francisco. Uh, so over 100 of these fires, uh, now literally about one a week. Um, when I first introduced the legislation and put it out there under the, you know, sat for 30 days. We didn't hear it from anybody until literally right before our first committee meeting, uh, we heard from uh, Lyft, which owns Bay Wheels, and they met with the fire marshal and myself and my staff uh, as to how they charge their batteries, and the fire marshal was able to suggest amendments to the legislation that did not compromise life safety, uh, and we took those amendments in committee back in December. Uh, subsequently, right before it got to the Board of Supervisors, uh, I believe on its second reading, um, we heard from uh, Lime, the scooter, the e-scooter company, and they had some uh, suggested changes that the fire marshal uh, did not think compromised life safety, and we made those. Um, but then we uh, heard from um, the e-bike retailer community, uh, and so in our last meeting in December, we sent this uh, back to committee, um, and I want to thank and acknowledge my relatively new staff, Nate Harrell, um, who, six? What? What? Oh, oh, got it. Okay. Got, got it. Okay. I will, I will, I will stop and I'll wrap up in just a second because I know that Supervisor Melgar wants to acknowledge some folks who are here from her district. Um, but uh, we 
Uh, I want to thank Nate Harrell. We um, have had a number of meetings um, with the e-bike retailer community and have uh, suggested some changes that are before us today that I am happy uh, to get into. Um, we also, uh, as a result of those meetings, um, have undertaken a collaboration with the Department of the Environment, uh, who is very interested in co-leading a public awareness campaign um, and is also very interested uh, in providing um, and encouraging proper disposal of e-waste, um, as well as providing <clears throat> for incentives for e-bike adoption. Uh, and I want to thank uh, Tyrone Ju for his participation. But with that, I will, as they say, yield back to the chair. Thank you very much, President uh, Peskin. Uh, and of course, I have to acknowledge uh, the uh, middle schoolers from St. Brendan's School in uh, the Greater West Portal area. Hi, guys. Uh, welcome. We are talking about bikes and e-bikes right now uh, and how we're going to make them safe so that everybody can ride them. Uh, so thank you so much for uh, joining us today. This is a really good civics lesson. Um, I also want to thank uh, President Peskin for your work uh, on this and for including uh, the voices of the um, small businesses who are engaging in this uh, issue. Um, and to uh, Fire Marshal, thank you so much for all the time and energy you spend uh, incorporating people's feedback. I really, really appreciate it, and I think it made it a better piece of legislation. Uh, so with that, why don't we bring you up? Thank you, Chairman Madrigar, uh, Board President Peskin, Supervisor Preston, John, um, Ken Coffin, your Farm Marshal. Um, so we'll get the presentation on there. Um, as it says, it says uh, batteries 2.0, and really it should probably be 2.7 or something by the times we've gone through this. Um, I'm just going to cover some highlights, more of some of the changes that's happened over it. Uh, again, I'm going to kind of reuse some of the slides, um, and then hopefully this will lead to a... Uh, discussion uh, among comments that are going to come forward. So first thing I want to say is what we, did, what we title as powered mobility devices. They're not just e-bikes. They are also skateboards, scooters, hoverboards, light electric vehicles. So this legislation covers more than just bikes, right? It's about the scooters out there. We know that those also start fires as much as anything else, and we all know what happened years ago with the hoverboards that came out there. Uh, hazards. Again, what are the hazards? Well, it's all about mischarging a lot of it more than anything else. And, you know, thermal runway, that's when one cell fails, uh, ignites the next one and the next one. Um, Lithium-ion batteries tend to put their own oxygen, so water is very difficult. It's, it's actually meant for cooling more than anything else. It doesn't really extinguish them. But the firefighters that we're sending in there also have to put up with toxic fumes and an explosion risk. What is this legislation... What, is it, what does it do for this? Well, it's going to establish the standards, right, for charging and storage, two different things, establishing safety certifications. So not just UL, but we'll have European uh, standards and accredited laboratory uh, standards. Um, it's prohibiting the use of uh, certain damaged batteries, the sale, the reuse of reconditioned batteries, and it's going to get the fire department to work with the Department of the Environment to develop a public informational campaign, which is very important. Now let's get down to the nitty-gritty. What part of this, um, how is it going to affect people? So first of all, the fire department is not putting a limit on the number of personal use devices in one- and two-family dwellings. We call those R3s. If, if 
they are listed, not just listed by UL standards, they're listed by European standards or in an accredited laboratory approved by the fire department. So we're gonna work with these different companies who come and provide us with documentation. We've been approached by the e-bike industry stating that they use a third party that was recently uh, accepted by the state of New York after their legislation. Um, it wasn't a nationally recognized testing laboratory, it wasn't UL, it wasn't EN, it was somebody else listening to them and them demonstrating how they test their devices allowed them to accept them. Um, now, it's also, these standards are not gonna affect those who allow up to four powered mobility devices, listed devices, same standards, in an R2, which is a multi-unit dwelling. So essentially, if you have a two-unit, 10-unit building, it's for personal use. It's for four tenants in each one. You could have, obviously, up to 20 plus these devices in the building. But again, they must be listed devices and they uh, will go into a little bit later about what minimum standards uh, the owner must have, or the owner of the actual mobility device. Again, also, we set standards for the charging of the batteries, both the batteries themselves and the chargers, and a requirement that you must actually inspect them after they've used or been damaged of some sort. So this came out last week. This is from the state fire marshal's office, and it actually kind of align, very much aligns with what we are doing uh, the Civil Code SB 712 established requirements for the storage of electronic bike scooters and other devices. What it was doing, it was helping the users to go ahead and allow them to bring these devices in their homes so landlords could not restrict them. So theirs allows up to one personal use device that meets a UL uh, 2849 standard for bikes, 2272 or 2271 for scooters. So we've allowed actually a little bit more than that. We allow up to four in a unit um, if they're listed by not only UL, but European standards and an accredited laboratory if they can prove. Um, this is helping the public avoid those landlords who do not want scooters in their buildings, but also um, ensuring that the, um, the, the tenants are insured for renters insurance if they are brought in there. Again, this comes with safety tips, and then uh, what to do if the battery, it's kind of an informational campaign, what to do if the battery starts failing. As part of this bulletin, they actually put forth part of our campaign. As you can see, we're not far off from what the state is actually requiring. It says the use of approved batteries, only the purchase and use of devices that have reputable testing agencies, like UL, that's what we're asking for, accredited European standards or UL. Use the wall outlet, we've talked about this and it's been brought up use of extension power strips. The state fire marshal is saying, hey, plug it into the wall, use the correct charger. And then there's some other things we're gonna bring on our campaign is, well, you don't put this device right by your door because if it fails, you're not getting out of your space. Okay, let's get down to some more specifics. Charging or storing them, your devices within each unit. Remember, each unit, typical uh, multi-unit building, uh, each apartment, dwelling unit, it's pretty much rated, right? Sheetrock is gonna give you on average one hour rating. So when it says a fire barrier of one hour rating, that's pretty much take, uh, a given. Uh, that's why you have self-closing doors. So they uh, maintain that rating. So if you have five or more, it triggers a few things. So if you wanted to put five of these devices in your multi-unit dwelling, you would ask for a higher level of safety. And that would include not only the rating of the, of the space itself, using the right charger, having a fire extinguisher, make sure you have some ventilation in case it off gases, but you're also going to put fire sprinklers and, and fire alarm smoke detection system in there. 
I think what you notice at the bottom here, any quantity of unlisted devices shall be charged outdoor only. That's the only restriction. It's unlisted right now. It needs to be charged outside. They have a greater chance of failure, and if they're going to fail, we prefer them on the outside. Now, for the businesses, if you have a business, you need to have, obviously, natural ventilation, mechanical ventilation, electrical receptacle for each battery charger. I put that graphic there on the right. You'll see it to show you when it says a receptacle, that's a that's the one plug. That's not the whole device. The other one's called an outlet, right? You can have four receptacles on an outlet. You can have two. So when it has to be plugged directly in it, it doesn't mean you need separate outlets. It means it needs to plug it into its own receptacle. Of course, as a business, you should have fire extinguishers. You should not be using power strips. That's for temporary and extension cords are for temporary wiring. And you should not have flammables or combustibles in those areas. Okay, that's simple. That's four or less. Now, again, just like the single multi-unit dwelling, if you're going to charge five or more, your business should be sprinklered and it should have a fire alarm system, right? Early notification to the fire department, early cooling of the devices, and then let the fire department come in and take care of the rest. Speaking with the retailers, we've also helped them out. Typically, a fire barrier is a one-hour rating. It's physical. Sometimes it's two sheets of uh, sheetrock with some walls on some studs self-closing doors and it blocks off the business. What we're saying here is we understand. It's not the new bikes that are gonna be giving us problems. It's not the people necessarily working on it. It's the ones that are charged that the, when you take those bikes in, you don't know what somebody has done to those and you're going to be charging them within your business. And what we're asking is for, instead of a wall, give yourself 10 feet, right? There's the charging area there, give yourself 10 feet. So if those do start a thermal runway or if they do start a fire, you're not gonna be catching the new bikes on fire, the overstock. Your other tenants, people, other customers whose bikes are being repaired, you've got those separate, okay? The lower part, the bottom part down there doesn't really affect any retailers. That's more of the mass uh, mobility, uh, the, the, e the bike rental industry, uh, the scooter rental industry, when they start charging hundreds of these units over while we sleep over at night and get them back out in the morning. This provides good safety practices for them. This legislation, it also says, we see it uh, in red there, it prohibits the sale and use of reconditioned batteries, but except as part of a city-authorized recycling program. That's what the Department of Environment is be helping with, and subject to the fire department approval of an accredited laboratory. We don't want people tinkering with them themselves, so there's lots of YouTube videos you can show, you go online how to take a battery apart, put it back together again, and hope for the best. We don't want that. We want an accredited business who knows what they're doing, at that point, recycling. Typically, recycling at this point is taking the battery apart, taking the goods of it, and making a new one. Very, I, we don't have any that I know of that actually rebuild these batteries. Speaking of the campaign, the campaign touches on six different areas, making sure that users know to use the right battery equipment safety standards, how to care for their batteries, what's the correct way to store and charge them, uh, to prohibit the assembly use or the second head of reconditioned batteries, how to get rid of them. We're gonna work at the Department of Environment on how to dispose of them and recycling solutions, very important. And information and programs on rebates for customer obtained safety certified devices. So if their program does come up where they, there's a buyback of some sort, a uh, swap out, that the Department of Environment will help us with that campaign. And to that, I'm open for questions. Thank you so much, uh, Fire Marshal. Uh, colleagues, do we have any questions or comments? Um, Supervisor Preston. 
Thank you, Chairman Elgar. And I just wanted to uh, thank President Peskin for all his work on this, as well as uh, Fire Department and Fire Marshal Coughlin. And, and uh, just, I think, uh, while it's always frustrating to have to do, take uh, many takes at these things to make sure we get all the details right, here we are balancing a bunch of interests. And also, I think there's just a huge benefit uh, from public education. It's not like everyone is watching these hearings, but we get a packed full room. We're streaming, and the more people are aware of just the fire risk, um, I, I think the better. So um, very much appreciate all the work. And I, and I just want to say that it's really reflected in the broad support we've gotten from so many organizations working, you know, San Francisco Tenants Union, uh, Chinatown Trip, uh, CCDC, uh, just a, a really broad coalition of folks who are recognizing um, and, and a lot of their members and folks they speak for have experienced what happens when uh, this goes wrong. Um, and as I've said at prior hearings on this, we had the, the one fatality in San Francisco associated uh, with uh, a, a lithium ion battery it was actually in my district and we don't ever want that to, to occur again. So I just want to thank you for all the work getting this right. Appreciate it. Okay, great. Uh, let's go to public comment on this item now, please, uh, Mr. Clerk. Thank you, Madam Chair. If you have public comment on agenda item number five related to charging of lithium ion batteries in powered mobility devices, please come forward to the lectern at this time. Hi, Patricia Boy from PADS, as well as from Marina Cajala, Mavis and Merchants. The one thing that was missing in this presentation were charging these, this equipment in garages. And that needs to be specified, clarified on how that's being done. That's all I'm saying. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your comments. Can we have the next speaker, please? Madam Chair, Mr. President, and Supervisor uh, Preston, my name is Alec Bash with the Gateway Tenants Association 1254 Apartments and Townhomes. I serve as external vice president and chair of the Safety Security Committee. And I want to thank President uh, Peskin for having brought this forward for all of the careful work involved in this. We have had, as he's already cited, a major fire at our complex several years ago. And it's very important for us and for all of the other residents there to have greater city control and public information provided about this so we wholeheartedly support the process that's been gone through. Are only sorry that this wasn't done three or four years ago, but here it is now. So thank you so much and hope that this goes forward quickly. I have a couple more people from the Gateway Tenants Association with me who are also here to speak in support, I think. But you probably don't need a lot of public testimony. Next speaker, please. Thank you, Alec. Barbara Lowe, um, Gateway resident, and I happen to live a floor above where this big fire happened about three years ago, where there were three or four, maybe five, of these uh, scooters all put together on an extension cord, and of course it blew up. And the people living in the apartment were trapped between the fire and the door. They're up on the 11th floor, and they escaped by crawling around the balcony on their floor around to the one adjacent to it putting themselves in peril. So consequently, there are something like 500 units just in my building, and I watch people come in the elevator with their scooter, with their bike, and it makes me very nervous because I don't know how much they know about how to plug these in. And um, 
how much the building knows about how many there are in the building. So I encourage as much education as possible. I'm delighted to see what you're putting forward, President Peskin, and I wholeheartedly endorse it. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. Can we get the next speaker, please? And we have a line of folks who are lined up along the side, as I requested earlier. So if you wish to join them, could we get you to line up with them, please? Next speaker, please come forward from the, from the front of the line. Yes. I trust this one is working. Yes, it is. Can please begin. Great. Okay. Uh, good afternoon, President Peskin, Supervisor Melgar, and Supervisor Preston. Did I get the P3? Yeah, I got them right order. Good. My name's Carol Brownson, and as you're considering this uh, legislation about lithium-ion batteries, I thought you might enjoy being in the room with a couple of lithium-ion batteries. <laughs> I, uh, since I can no longer walk any great distance, these batteries are my ticket to independence. They make my community engagement possible. Now, I realize as the legislation stands at this point, um, devices for the disabled, such as the little rascal here, uh, are not included. Why is that? When uh, I, after I, um, I roll down here on this, after I roll home, I'm going to charge that battery in my old wood San Francisco house. I'll do it sensibly, no extension cords, um, one, uh, one to an outlet, but I'll be charging it in an old San Francisco wooden house. Now, I checked the battery certification. It's UN38.3 certified, safe for transport on an airplane in the cabin, which I've done. Uh, but in the house, if it starts a fire while I'm charging it in the house, what then? I, <coughs> excuse me, I generally appreciate this legislation very much. It should help encourage the safe use of battery-powered um, mobility devices like this. It will help people free themselves from being imprisoned in cars in San Francisco, and they'll love it. They'll love it. Um, Speaker's time is concluded. Thank you for sharing okay. your comments with the committee. And then if the next speaker could come forward to the lectern, please. Good afternoon, Board of Supervisors. My name is Clara Mable, and I'm the Director of Advocacy at the San Francisco Bicycle Coalition. Thank you, President Peskin, co-sponsors, and Fire Marshal Coughlin for taking up such an important issue and for making the many rounds of amendments to the original ordinance. I'm here today to express our organization's support for the ordinance on the table. The San Francisco Bicycle Coalition understands the importance of this ordinance is to prevent lithium-ion battery fires. We are happy to see that almost all of the recommendations put forward by stakeholders have been adopted. We believe the current ordinance addresses most of the unintentional consequences predicted by said stakeholders. 
We still have concerns about requiring devices to be three feet apart when charging and the consequences that limitation may pose, especially for our small specialty e-bike businesses. If the ordinance gets approved today without this amendment, I encourage you to work closely with those stakeholders to adapt if it does pose significant consequences. In addition to this ordinance moving forward, it is of the utmost importance that we move forward with a program for owners of non-compliant devices. E-bikes and e-mobility are great things for our city, and as they continue to be a growing form of transportation, we need to make sure they are certified by a qualified testing lab. We um, are excited, uh, mostly, uh, in addition to see the Department of Environment being looped in to support the educational campaign, balancing safety messaging and encouraging people to use e-mobility moves us closer to our city's sustainable transportation goals. Thank you again, President Peskin, co-sponsors, and Fire Marshal Coughlin for your leadership and collaboration. We support the ordinance and believe it is much stronger um, than it was orig originally introduced. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your comments. Clara Mable, could we have the next speaker, please? Afternoon, committee members. Cyrus Hall, sustainable transportation advocate here in San Francisco. I'm here today to thank this committee and particularly uh, Chair and Supervisor Peskin and the fire marshal for taking feedback and taking feedback very seriously from advocates and small business owners in the community. Significant changes have been implemented in this ordinance and it is a much better piece of legislation than it was when it started. Fire safety is vital for our community's health. I mean, it's like really straightforward and obvious, right? We have to get this right to make sure that we don't have fires threatening lives, burning down buildings. For any transition towards sustainable transportation, electric mobility devices are going to be essential in the city of Hills. There, there's no way around it. We're not going to have a city of thunder thighs going up and down Twin Peaks. We need batteries to make this work. So it's vital that we pass legislation like this to balance the safety of the community and our sustainable transportation. So I support this ordinance in its current form. I do encourage three follow-ups after this passes. One, monitoring that the three-foot spacing rule between mobility devices while charging is necessary. And if we can relax the number of bikes stored to the state standards to find an SB 712. Three feet of distance between devices implies that a shared charging location and multifamily housing will have to be quite large, which will increase building costs and more likely will just reduce the number of parking spots that uh, are eventually built. Two, I look forward to working with Supervisor Peskin and all other supporters and our state level representatives on bringing the Envision trade-in program to life with funding. It is vital that we remove unsafe devices from the market whenever possible in order to reduce fire risk. And three, it's important that the educational program that results from this encourages the informed adoption of electric mobility devices. Adoption is important, but it speaker needs to be informed. Concluded. Thank you for your work. Thank, Thank you, you, Cyrus Hall, for sharing your comments. Can we have the next speaker, please? Uh, good afternoon, Supervisors. My name is Paul Wormer. I'm part of the chorus saying, yay, this is good, thank you. Um, but as always, I have a couple of comments or suggestions. And one of them is, I'm concerned that this legislation really focuses heavily on UL 2489, which talks about the entire bicycle. And it referenced other codes, such as the US Code of Federal Regulations, in ways that says many things that people think of as bicycles aren't covered by that 
standard. Um, I would suggest it might be very helpful to uh, focus on a battery and charger standard, such as the UL 2271 for batteries and 1310 for chargers. That would address things such as the uh, mobility devices uh, for the disabled. It's a transferable one, and it has a real advantage for innovative small cu custom bike companies that might want to locate here. We talk about innovation. Uh, in San Francisco. And I know in Rhode Island, there's a guy who does wonderful custom bikes. Here, to certify a bicycle to UL 2489 is very, very expensive. I think cost prohibitive. If you can buy already certified battery chargers and use them, it makes it much easier for a small bicycle company to customize bicycles to meet specific needs. Uh, but that would never get 2489 certification because UL certification is expensive. Did you know that if I wanted to read 2489, I would have to buy a copy for over $500? That doesn't count the cost of certifying and annual recertification that UL requires. So this may be something that the fire marshal's office can do under the approved by fire marshal standards, but I encourage that to be considered moving forward. Thank you. And I just want to add that the amendments um, speak to UL 2272 in addition to 2849, as well as uh, European standards. And then what Mr. Wormer just mentioned, which was uh, a standard um, approved by the fire department, which gives some wiggle room. And um, you will also see in the legislation reference to UL 1564, 1310, and 1012. Thank you, President Peskin. Thank you. Next speaker, please come forward to the lectern. And while you're doing that, just to mention, the room is getting a little bit crowded. We have capacity in here for about 250 people. If you are here in the chamber with us and you've just joined uh, the crowd here, please make sure that you find a seat. And I think that we should be able to accommodate everyone. Let's get that next speaker, please. Thank you very much. And I would also like to thank uh, President uh, Peskin and uh, our fire marshal. This is a very critical um, ordinance that we are beginning, that we are about to pass, hopefully, and hopefully very soon. I represent uh, 1100 Sacramento Street, and I have collaborated with uh, uh, 1200 uh, Sacramento Street and uh, 1750 Taylor, representing about 200 uh, units of, uh, of private or HOA, uh, which is not covered, I believe, under the uh, state law 712, I believe HOAs are not included. Um, but what I would mostly like to say is that I believe we need a way that we can assure careful monitoring of what's going on uh, in, in our buildings. We need to be able to uh, have people regularly or annually make certain that they are still using the same units, make certain they have not been damaged, because uh, units can become damaged and then they can be a real danger. And uh, I think that's one thing that it's gonna be difficult to uh, patrol. Um, also, uh, I think the informational campaign is gonna be critical and uh, it would be important also to know where would these batteries, if they're determined to be damaged, where would they be inspected? And I, I don't know what that would be in the fire department, but certainly uh, I think it's critical that we have a very close alliance with the fire department. And I would even suggest including it in our annual 
uh, fire drills and be part of looking at uh, electronic mobility devices uh, during that uh, uh, annual week which we uh, do conduct fire drills. Thank you so much and I appreciate all of your efforts. I really do. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your comments. Can we have the next speaker, please? Hi, Supervisors and Fire Marshal. Uh, I'm Ruth Malone. I'm a Professor Emerita at UCSF of Nursing and Health Policy. Very concerned with safety. Very happy to see that this is going to be addressed. I want to, and my husband and I also ride e-bikes as our primary mode of transportation around the city, and they are truly a game changer. Um, I wanted to just raise a concern about the framing of the educational campaign, which I'm very pleased to see the Department of Environment will be involved in. But I really, as it stands, as I read through the various drafts of the ordinance, I felt like I was getting a message of e-bikes are the problem, danger, danger, as opposed to e-bikes are a solution, here's how to be safe with them. And I just um, want to just uh, hope that as this educational campaign rolls out, uh, we think about the fact that we have commitments to uh, addressing climate change. We have commitments as a city to active transportation. And so we don't want to inadvertently be discouraging or scaring people off from using these devices. Um, everybody wants to be operating safely. Nobody wants to burn their house down. But I really think that we uh, need to be sure that the messaging of this campaign carries both the safety message and the these are wonderful devices message. Thank you. Thank you, Ruth Malone, for sharing your comments. Can we have the next speaker, please? And if there's anyone else who has public comment on agenda item number five from whom we have not yet heard, please line up to speak along that western wall of the room. You may begin. Hi, my name is Stacy Randecker. I'm in District 10, and it's so fitting that I follow the legendary Ruth Malone. I first want to start by saying I recognize that every person here in the working for the city in this room gets up every day and is trying to do right by this city, is trying to do what they think is best to do have the most positive impact. But the issue is this is not this is this is going to have very little impact and is missing much larger problems that are exactly related by taking our fire department and having them focus on e-batteries, which in the publicly available data for 2022, they state 58, but I can only find 32, and I'm pretty good at looking at data. What I can find 58 of are fires caused by cigarettes and cigars, smoking items. We're doing nothing to limit smoking in San Francisco. It all carries on as it has for many years since we've cl clamped down on it. But now e-bikes and scooters, something that are not cars, which by the way, we have over 3,000 motor vehicle crashes in this city every day. We're not doing anything to limit those. And that is something we desperately need because in 2022, the year of question in the article in the standard, that's the year we, the, the city will admit we lost 39 lives to motor vehicle incidents. But in fact, we lost 54. I am very, I appreciate all the time and effort that has gone into it, but it is completely misguided. And really, what is more important is getting e-cigarettes. The data is not clear. There are many of those incidences which could be e-cigarettes, which could be computers, which could be phones. And I will let you know that one of the incidents in 2022 was at a fire station, station 16. 
There needs to be a much deeper dive on this data and Speaker ditch this, concluded. please. Thank you, Stacey Randecker, for sharing your com uh, comments with the committee. Could we have the next speaker, please? Good afternoon, supervisors. My name is Floyd Rollins. I am the president of the San Francisco Firefighters Local 798. Thank you for this legislation. I thank you for all the work that was done uh, on your part, as well as the part of the fire marshal's office and the fire department. I um, can echo the um, concerns regarding this legislation, but not only from the fire standpoint, but what also needs to be addressed is the horribly toxic fumes that come from these, um, these batteries. Um, when you are talking about uh, fumes from hydrogen, from fluoride, that become absorption hazards in your skin, that can become inhalation hazards, not only to residents of the building, um, but also to residents of uh, neighboring buildings, but as well to my members, the firefighters who respond to these fires. Um, it is something that has exponentially grown over the years. There are national conversations going on about this. So I just wanted to come up and say thank you very much uh, and speak in support of this legislation. And um, please continue the work because my members certainly appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you, Floyd Rollins, for sharing your comments with the committee. Do we have anyone else who has public comment on agenda item number thank you, Floyd. five? Madam Chair. Okay, thank you. Uh, public comment on this item is now closed. President Peskin, do you want to make a motion? Or? Madam Chair, uh, before introducing the amendments, I would just like to uh, profoundly thank the fire marshal from the fire department, Ken Coughlin, who has been uh, really a pleasure to work with, and uh, the amendments that we have done along the way, he has tried to accommodate within the boundaries of doing what is uh, safe, and I know that once this is law, he's going to implement it fairly this is and, and he's repeated this a number of times not only in my office but as we've met with stakeholders that this is not a, a gotcha uh, piece of legislation this is a bring people into compliance do it uh, slowly this is not people aren't going to be written up on day one and get tickets um, we're, we're going to work with people to make it safe so thank you Ken Coughlin um, with that colleagues I would like to uh, move the amendments that I have circulated that are non-substantive, uh, page three, uh, citing um, uh, the California Code of Regulations defining uh, hazardous waste. Um, on page four, uh, speaking to the board's intent uh, to explore the creation of a trade-in program. Uh, on page five, uh, creating a definition of safety certified powered mobility device uh, on uh, page six, um, deleting language and using that safety certified power mobility device definition, uh, more of same uh, on page seven uh, and eight and nine. Um, on page 10, language, uh, uh, speaking to um, an authorized recycling program uh, on page 11, uh, speaking to proper disposal of lithium-ion batteries, uh, and those are the amendments. I'd like to move the amendments and send the item as amended with recommendation to the Board of Supervisors. Thank you for um, 
allowing me to have this heard again and for giving me the opportunity to fix it. And thank you to the public for um, helping make it a better piece of legislation. Motion has been offered by Member Peskin that the ordinance be recommended, sorry, be amended and then recommended as amended with the amendments as he re uh, read into the record. On that motion, Vice Chair Preston. Preston, aye. Member Peskin. Aye. Peskin, aye. Chair Melgar. Aye. Melgar, aye. Madam Chair, there are three ayes. Thank you. That motion passes. Uh, for everyone who has joined us uh, in the last few minutes, we are now at item number six. Uh, if you're here for the marina item, that will be number seven. So it's going to be a little while before we hear it. Um, so with that, uh, Mr. Clerk, let's go to item number six, please. Agenda item number six is an ordinance amending the planning code to allow form-based density in residential commercial, residential transit-oriented neighborhood commercial, and certain named neighborhood commercial districts, except for specified lots located in the Priority Equity Geographies Special Use District. Amending the Priority Equities Geographies Special Use District, affirming the Planning Department's CEQA determination, and making findings throughout the ordinance of consistency with the planning code in sections 302 and 101.1. Um, thank you so much. Um, we are now joined by uh, Supervisor Asha Safai, who uh, did put a bunch of work into this ordinance. Thank you very much. Um, I am, uh, colleagues, a co-sponsor of this ordinance. Um, you will remember that last year we unanimously uh, uh, approved the housing element, uh, which included an action item that would replace lot-based density controls with one that is form-based, uh, and that's what this is. Oh. Um, this ordinance, uh, I think, is is sensible. Uh, it doesn't um, it, it doesn't um, change things like uh, heights, other impacts like uh, open space, bulk setbacks, or unit mix. Um, there is a lot of intentionality around uh, focusing this policy within residential commercial, residential transit-oriented, and neighborhood commercial districts and certain named neighborhood commercial districts that are outside of priority equity geographies because we want to uh, incentivize those housing opportunities near commercial hubs, near transportation connections, and other community amenities. Uh, you will remember that um, you know, just a, a few months ago, we uh, passed a um, Housing Opportunity Act, which um, incentivized low density uh, in our uh, RH uh, lots in you know, mid blocks, mostly on the west side. Um, this is sort of the mirror image of that, to uh, concentrate the higher density, smaller units in commercial corridors where seniors or single folks um, could uh, have opportunity to housing. Uh, there are uh, separate discussions right now underway on other parts of the housing element, uh, but this uh, should not be like a one-size-fit-all approach. Um, this allows for different types of units in different areas. Uh, for instance, as a city, we have adopted a policy to encourage more dwelling unit mixes, to encourage more child-friendly housing in larger units in other areas. Uh, in other projects, it, make, it may make more sense to have uh, larger units and some smaller units like for seniors or single folks in other areas. So we need flexibility in our current code that density caps don't provide for. So I will um, uh, let Audrey Merloni come up, uh, but I, did you have, a, okay, okay, all right, this okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, who will present for the planning department um, 
uh, on this item. Welcome, Ms. Merloni, again. Thank you very much, Chair Melgar. Um, again, Audrey Merloni from the Planning Department. Um, as Chair Melgar already stated, the ordinance before you today is the result of a collaborative effort between the Mayor's Office, Supervisor Melgar's Office, Supervisor Safai's Office, and the Planning Commission. The Planning Commission heard this ordinance on October 26th of last year and made several recommended modifications, all of which have been incorporated into the version before you today. The ordinance would amend the planning code and zoning map to replace numerical residential density limits, senior housing density limits, and group housing density limits with form-based controls in the neighborhood commercial districts, residential transit-oriented districts, residential commercial districts that fall outside of the priority equity geographies SUD, which uh, there's a few exceptions which I'll get in the, into those shortly. The ordinance would also remove numerical density limits for group housing in RTO districts citywide and remove numerical density limits for senior housing in RC3, RC4, and RTO districts citywide. I have maps in case that is helpful, um, and thank you, Mr. Carroll, for ma making that one available for the public to see. Um, so these are for the supervisors if they would like to have a hard copy and then we will have one up on SFGov TV, and we can, I'll zoom in there a bit so that it's a little easier to see. I know it's a large map. All right, so we believe this is an important step forward in equalizing the capacity for housing development in the city. This ordinance will allow for greater density in areas of our city that are traditionally rich in transportation and amenities through a form-based density approach, while also ensuring areas identified as vulnerable to displacement are not part of a sweeping change. So there are a few exceptions to what I described. Um, the first set of exceptions were made because each of these zoning districts has a small portion that either falls just outside or just inside the SUD, and for implementation purposes, we believe these districts shouldn't be divided in how they calculate the residential density. So the first of those districts is um, the North Beach NCD will not be included in this ordinance. The um, density controls will remain as they currently are, which is numeric density controls, and that is because a very small portion of the NCD falls outside the priority equity geographies SUD, however, the majority falls within. So for those who know where that is, you'll see it is missing from this map because it is not included in the legislation. And then in the inverse, even though a very small portion of the Polk Street NCD falls inside the priority equity geographies SUD, the entire district will be converted to form-based density, which you can also see there on the map. It is the magenta that comes into the, um, the boundary of the SUD. And then our second ex uh, exception to these rules that we've stated was the one um, requested by Supervisor Safai, their office has worked with the Excelsior Outer Mission NCD and found that form-based density is desired and appropriate for that district. So it's been included in this ordinance even though it falls within the priority equity geographies SUD. That concludes the staff presentation and I'm available for questions. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Merloni. Um, President Peskin. Thank you, Madam Chair. Um, there are are a number of amendments that I am asking the city attorney to prepare that um, I asked for a week ago when I heard this was coming that are not ready today that I would like to um, propose when they are ready. 
Um, put simply, I'm all for increased density, but what we found out when we density decontrolled the C2 that combined with state density bonus and now state density double bonus, um, even though they sit in a designated city historic district that's been a historic district for getting on to 50 years, that when you combine it with form-based density, you can end up, and this is, I'm just telling you what's happened, uh, 200 foot towers in 65 foot zoning districts. So these are radical un unanticipated height increases. So what I wanna make sure of is that we do this in a way where residents and supervisors, whether they are in the Sunset or the Richmond or uh, the Marina or wherever, don't end up with the unanticipated form base where you basically squeeze it into a tower, which is what happened uh, in the Northeast Waterfront Historic District as a result of um, our, including myself, voting for the C2 density decontrols. So I think there's a way to fix that, uh, and I would like to propose those when they are ready. Okay, uh, Supervisor Preston. Thank you, Chair Melgar. Uh, yeah, I have some uh, questions on this. I, you know, first, without belaboring it, just want to uh, note what I've noted in, in prior hearings uh, on deregulation and decontrol of market rate housing that I can't even count how many pieces of legislation we are at uh, since the housing element was adopted to deregulate market rate housing, and I can count the number we have uh, had in this committee or that have been introduced by the administration to incentivize or assist us uh, on affordable housing and that number is zero. So I just wanna, I won't belabor that point, I will just note it. Um, but I did have a couple questions specifically about this effort, which is a pretty broad effort to um, remove any of the current controls um, around uh, density. Um, one is that while we've done some outreach to uh, neighborhood groups and others in our district. Uh, I'm not aware of any outreach from the planning department or the mayor's office to any of these groups and I just wanted, but I, I don't want to assume, so did want to give an opportunity for planning department to describe, um, in, in particular in my district, there's, you know, the areas, Tenderloin and Fillmore are largely exempt uh, as being in priority equity communities in Japantown as well. Um, but for the Haight-Ashbury, Hayes Valley, Lower Haight, North of Panhandle area, Divisadero, uh, what outreach, if any, has been done about this legislation? Thank you, Supervisor Preston, for that question. Um, again, the, the Planning Commission is not the sponsor of this ordinance, and I don't want to speak on behalf of the mayor's office, but I can tell you that the reason that we are supportive of this is because of the fact that our own housing element um, requires us to increase housing choice, mid-rise development for small and multifamily housing types in our well-resourced neighborhoods, and that is um, outreach generally that was then done through the housing element proposals. Um, for this specific legislation, our department, again, is not the sponsor, but many, um, much outreach was done through the housing element program, which this is accomplishing uh, an objective from. Thank you, and I appreciate that the outreach on the housing element 
um, and I think planning department did uh, quite a bit of, of outreach in that context. I, I do think that there's, um, I do think there's a difference. I don't think every topic that is referenced in the 183-page housing element, um, I don't think it automatically translates that that means there doesn't need to be outreach on specific legislative proposals. And again, as uh, Supervisor Peskin noted, I, it's the density may be fine. It's just these th these are dramatic increases that people have should have uh, should be aware of uh, some of these sites. Um, I know on Divisadero, for example, when we when we did this by a targeted ordinance, um, you know, a site that was zoned for 16 units became a 64 unit site. And then now with the state bonuses up closer to 100 units. And again, I actually think, you know, in some of these cases, that's a good thing. But it's but neighbors have no idea that's happening. So there needs to be some uh, conversation. Um, I do, you know, we had this extensively at Pri and on other legislation just in terms of mayor's office versus planning department. Uh, Mr. Starr was in the unfortunate position, I think, of uh, being tasked with uh, being both simultaneously and having to literally uh, jump from side to side of the podium uh, wearing different hats. Uh, I, I think if the mayor's office, I will just say if the mayor's office is going to propose legislation and if the planning department is not going to be in a position to speak for the mayor's office, then the mayor's office should be here. And it sounds like there may be some amendments in the works and I just think it would be helpful to have the mayor's office here uh, when this uh, presumably uh, comes back so we can get answers to, to questions like that. Um, it, more, uh, Couple more specific questions. So, and this came up back when we were talking about the, the unfortunately named cars to Casa uh, in, in this committee, um, uh, which, which dealt more specifically with the auto uses lots and, and decontrolling density there. Um, but I pointed out at the time and wanted to ask uh, uh, Ms. Merloni, um, the, the pl planning code section 415.6 requires that we look at that there actually be a feasibility study that's presented to the board and the controller when we are increasing density by above a certain percentage uh, that we look at the what the feasibility of requiring additional uh, affordable housing as part of conveying that benefit to developers. Uh, so I wanted to ask you or, or Mr. Starr or anyone from the department um, whether any such analysis was done in connection with this uh, proposal. Um, not specifically in connection to this ordinance, but the TAC report and the re readjusting of the inclusionary rates did take into account density decontrol and what is feasible at this point. So it's just building on that. Got it. One big difference, though, if I'm reading this right, like this is this is a piece of legislation that permanently changes the density requirements. I think that the discussions in the TAC and looking at wherever people landed on the issue of what the inclusionary fees should be, right, it was all through a lens of um, kind of a short-term, dealing with the short-term reality of lack of feasibility of a lot of these projects and having a short-term uh, fix to change some of that. But this is permanent, right? I mean, the, 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 or at least it doesn't, it doesn't sunset. This is what? basically just lifting all the, all the existing density controls except in the exempted well, the, areas. The, 
the inclusionary rates are temporary, right. um, but every zoning decontrolled density is permanent. So right. it looked at zoning districts that didn't have numeric density controls, and they found that in those districts, building housing isn't feasible with the current rates, so it lowered them. So when the TAC comes back, it'll look again at the inclusionary rates and raise them. It, it's kind of different from changing, like right. revoking the zoning. Yeah, thank you. And, and I think that's the, the issue that I wanted to discuss with you, and I appreciate the, the comment. I, you know, historically what we've done in the city is, and, and, and what is envisioned by the planning code, is increases to density or height that are going to, if you have a 35% or greater increase in density, uh, that we're going to look at and try to legislate some increases to the on-site affordable housing or to the, the fees. So that, that was how it was done in San Francisco for some time, recognizing that a developer gets a significant increase. The land value, you know, once you lift all the density restrictions, there's no question the land value increases. I think we all can agree to that. Um, and so we look at, can the, can the community capture any of the benefit through additional of, uh, affordability? Um, that was for the first time not done in my district before I took office on Divisadero and was the source of a three-year debate at which at the end of it, the former planning director acknowledged that the department had and, and the city had messed up in up zoning there, lifting all the density controls without requiring additional affordability. And there was subsequently legislation carried by my predecessor, uh, by the mayor at one time, I think by the mayor then handed off to, to uh, former Supervisor Brown um, to kind of correct that and to add in some additional affordability in exchange uh, for that increased density. So understandably, in the last few years and since the pandemic and with the cost, the, f the feasibility analysis, I think we all understand, looks different in, in the moment, right? Where even with all these changes, none of these projects are moving forward, right? Um, but, but the concern is, and I guess what I'm, I'm asking as a matter of policy and as this sits and, and comes back presumably after continuance is like, are we locking ourselves in here? Like it's one thing to say, as we've done with the inclusionary fees, that at a given point in time to make some things pencil out we need to make some sh you know, short-term changes as long as people pull permits and start getting the shovels in the ground and go in, you know, within a limited time frame. That's pretty different from saying, like going forward, no matter what happens in this market, you know, that we're just lifting, and I don't think we can reclaim those density changes later, right? So, um, I, so we're, we're are we just given up on the idea that when you lift density controls and substantially increase the value of what the landowner and developer owns, that as a city, if I'm reading this right, we're just saying we're, if, if this passes, we're, we're just, for the long haul, not going to require any additional affordability. Or am I reading that wrong? I, I, I think there's a difference in what you're talking about we we've decontrolled for density in every new zoning district we've done we never take that back and we adjust the inclusionary rates based on afford our feasibility so we will if it shows that we can extract more affordable units or inclusionary units in the future raise that and this 
zoning district will be subject, or these zoning districts will be subject to that increased inclusionary rate. So I, I'm, I'm confused but, by your statement and question. I, I think, Mr. Starr, through the chair, not in exchange for additional rezoning. Like, you're absolutely right. We could, as a, overall, as a city, say, instead of this percent, we're going with that percent across the board. But, but what we've always done until this most recent chapter is tied the idea of you're getting this, you're getting decontrol, whether it's height, density, and in exchange for that, that thing which is going to increase your property value to the property owner or developer, it is a moment in time when it's perfectly legal and legitimate for us to require something back for the community, usually in the form of affordable housing. We just did an entire report. The TAC just did an yeah. entire feasibility report saying that increased affordability or inclusionary rates are not feasible. So I'm not sure what benefit would happen if we did another report to show that it's not feasible to increase inclusionary rates. So, we, so we're no longer doing the reports required by 415.6. The, the assumption is any decontrol, increased density, uh, or increase in developable, developable residential gross floor area, those triggers, like we're no longer doing feasibility studies and we we just assume that I mean, nothing I, is... I didn't say that. We did do one, and right. I think it was done in September, correct? Right. Exactly. So and that's when this ordinance went through the process, and it showed that increased inclusionary is not feasible, so we had to decrease the inclusionary? Right. Yeah. Right. And I, and, but we, what we haven't done... To, but you're saying that covers a scenario of complete decontrol? I'm, it informed the decision, yes. I mean, it... It didn't specifically look at this, but it, in, it anticipated decontrolled density areas. So there are areas that don't have density control. They are form-based. And in those areas, it is not feasible to construct projects under the old inclusionary rates, so they were lowered. Right. And this is decontrolling density in other neighbor commercial districts. Okay, I, I'm, and also, I mean, this was also contemplated in the housing element, which we all voted on and passed, and um, is something that HCD is going to make sure that we do. It maybe not in this ordinance, but when the rezoning comes um, from the planning department, which they're going through an outreach process now, and there will be height increases associated with that, density decontrol comes with that as well. Can I ask, why would we not do this on a shorter-term basis? In other words, if it's driven by the current feasibility in the market, why would we not say, for, as we did with the inclusion rates, for X, for X number of years, if you get entitled, and if you use it or lose it in terms of your, you know, then you have this decontrol without additional affordability. But that that's, that's going to get reset in three years, five years. When the, or, like if the market looks different, this is going to look absurd that we just allowed complete decontrol with no requirements on affordable housing. My understanding is that in three years, the TAC will meet again and look at the inclusionary rates, and if they need to be raised, they will raise them. Right, but at which point the entire city, except for priority equity zones, would have no density restrictions. But they will be subject to the higher inclusionary rate. Right, I, I, I get it. We're 
I, no need to, uh, subject to the higher inclusionary, but again, you're gonna have lots of lots that were always subject, that had no density controls, and those that got this increase. Like this, this is, I, I just wanna emphasize, and I get that, it, that there's a theory where all restrictions on property development are a problem and we should just get rid of them all, but the, the reality is people buy property under certain set of restrictions. When you do this, you dramatically increase their property value, and that is a moment, that moment when you are dramatically increasing their value by decontrolling the density completely on the lot, that is the moment where this city has usually stepped in and said, yes, we're gonna do that for you, and you're going to do something in exchange, which is usually affordability, and we're, we're pretty much taking that off the table in perpetuity. Um, as, as to your, um, and so I, I am curious just, and, and we could take a look and, uh, at just the, fee, it would be great to know the feasibility, if it's the, the um, which one it is that covers this and satisfies the 415.6, if you wanna forward that to us, that'd be great. If, if it's this one versus the one that was done the last time we raised this, which was back, uh, I mean, we've year or so done feasibility studies for the TAC report, right. we did one for the fourplex ordinance. Yep. None of them showed that any development of a certain size is feasible yep. in San Francisco. Yep. And look, I don't want to do studies just to do studies. So if they're going to show it the same thing and I hear you, that like may be, it may be. I'm just saying that like, I'd like to know if we're going to enforce 415.6. If the position is that one of these studies shows such difficulties in the market that any of these things can now be done without, uh, without a feasibility study. Like I, I, I would just like to know if that's, if that's the position going forward. Cause usually you propose a piece of legislation that's, if it's going to have that impact, you then do the feasibility study. That didn't happen here. If, if you think the other one covers it, like I'm, I'm happy to look at that. Yeah. All right. Um, on the, on the um, outreach, I just wanna say removal of density controls and the idea like, that, cause that's in the housing element, that there doesn't need to be additional outreach, I think is, uh, is problematic. And, and I think it does, it undermines efforts, I think to do density control. Like I actually think we should, on a lot of this, I think we should be proud to go to communities and say, here's why we're, like, I'm, I'm not judging the merits of some of these density, decrease in density uh, controls or removals of them, but I think we gotta be more transparent with folks, and, and I, you know, this is like buried in a 183-part document. The only reference to removal of density controls we found is like tucked in a paragraph that talks about four other things at 7.3.2, you know, at page 131 of 183, like, it, it, these are pretty significant impacts on neighborhoods, and, and I don't think it's too much to, and maybe the mayor's office did more outreach than we're aware of and can speak to that next time, but I think just contacting basic, the basic neighborhood associations, you all are, know how to do it and are good at it when you do it, it's it, it just like flagging that this is gonna have a pretty significant impact on neighborhoods and make the case for why it's still a good thing. Um, should be done and I don't, I just wanna warn against saying if it's, if it's referenced somewhere in the 183 pages of the housing element that somehow the public has that notice because I, I don't think that's uh, a constructive, I, I think that is gonna trigger backlash uh, in communities that, that we shouldn't be triggering. Um, I think that's it, thank you, thanks. Thank you, uh, Supervisor Preston. Um, 
Supervisor Safai, did you want to add some comments before we go to public comment? Well, I was, but I kind of lost my energy after all that questioning. I'll just say, I'll just say that um, I'm happy that we're going through this process. Um, our district in particular that was added as an amendment, and thank you, uh, Chair uh, Mel Melgar, uh, for working with our office. Um, there's a hodgepodge of different density. And, and the example that I think of that was a wonderful example for our neighborhood, actually, was a site that was zoned for 67 units. Uh, Chair Melgar was on the planning commission at the time. Um, and with density decontrol in exchange for affordability, we got that project up to 200 units. Um, and we worked with the neighbors in terms of the setbacks and so on. Ended up being a phenomenal project. We just cut the ribbon for the child care center last week. Uh, there's a 5,000 square foot child care center. There's over almost 50 units of affordable on site, all of which we would not have been able to get without density decontrol. Um, and what we're really talking about, I think, in, this, in, in the map that was shown is really along the commercial corridors in the area and throughout the city, predominantly. And I think that those are the areas that can really handle density decontrol. We want more. I mean, for, for our district in particular, the commercial corridor has suffered dramatically for lack of a built-in economic demand and putting more units, putting more people in that area to service and work with uh, a more livable design and also to support the businesses is really, really important to our neighborhood. So that's why we came forward with this amendment. So we appreciate it. I think it's thoughtful and I'm happy to be part of this process. I know it's going to be continued, but I just wanted to add those, add those few words. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Supervisor Safai. Uh, and before we go to public comment, I will just add that uh, these are uh, form-based uh, controls, uh, which means that also they would apply to affordable housing projects as well as senior housing and group housing projects. Uh, so with that, let's go to public comment on this item, please. Thank you, Madam Chair. If you have public comment on agenda item number six related to density calculation in certain named districts as listed in the planning code, please come forward to the lectern at this time for two minutes apiece. Two minutes, this is gonna be hard because this one hit me by surprise. Uh, Patricia Boy, Marina Calhalla, Neighbors and Merchants. We fought for 12 more senior housings at 2055 Chestnut and were denied by the planning commission and by the politicians. We fought for 333, under PADS, we fought for more housing uh, at 3333 California and were denied less commercial, less offices, and we were denied it. This is a start, but it's not correct. I've got another problem, though. We've got an issue of the Marina Calhalla that is very different from the others and it's called tourism. People come across that bridge and look at that view, and it has been deemed legally a public vista. And uh, from the outside, not from us, but from the outside. And we can do it. 2055 Chestnut was a perfect example of how you could do inclusionary housing. And we were denied the right to do it because of people connected to this building. And I think that we need to look at this and uh, Supervisor Safai, I would like to work with you on this 
because this is a very interesting issue concerning the tourism of the city. And we, like to, we would like to have more density, but the height issue is a very interesting issue because of the public vista. And it can be done if we decide to work as a team. And that's all I'm gonna say. Thank you very much. Thank you for sharing your comments with the committee. Could we have the next speaker, please? Good afternoon, Ozzie Realm with uh, No Neighborhood Council and San Francisco Land Use Coalition. Um, one thing that gets lost in all this density control is the fact that none of this is gonna bring affordable housing. And I'm talking about deeply affordable housing. Um, sure, you know, you could get rid of the density limits, but there is absolutely no guarantee that we are gonna have a reasonable number of affordable housing on a site. Uh, let's face it, a developer comes with private capital. Private money could care less about affordable housing. So let's not mistake the task of creating affordable housing, which is upon us, the residents, to push you, the government officials, to actually bring that about. So all this talk about density control, this is to benefit the developers. And frankly, most San Franciscans, San Franciscans are sick and tired of hearing that, oh, the HCD, the boogeyman, is going to come after you unless you go along with this uh, housing element. 180 pages, as Supervisor Preston said, or actually it's more Supervisor Preston, because if you count the appendix B, C, A, and whatnot that nobody goes and reads, it's far more than that. Why do we have to go along with plannings, edicts, statements without any evidence base. This is not gonna bring affordable housing and you're actually giving benefits to developers and private capital without getting anything back. Uh, Supervisor Safai, I remember this project that probably you're talking about at the Planning Commission, I was there and I remember the developer was given 50%, correct me if I'm wrong, 50% of the units were gonna be affordable housing. And I supported that. It, Okay, fine, this was a private capital that decided to give 50% to low-income people. Fine, but do you actually think that Speaker other developers would do the same? Thank you, Ozzy Rome, for sharing your comments with the committee. Just a reminder to all the speakers who have yet to take their opportunity to speak to the committee, make sure that you address your comments to the entire panel. Land Use and Transportation Committee is ready to hear your comments. Please begin. Good afternoon. Sorry, sometimes my notes get upside down and I just get a little confused. Um, good afternoon, uh, members of the Land Use Committee. Corey Smith on behalf of the Housing Action Coalition. Excited to speak in support of this legislation. Uh, I want to thank Mayor Breed, uh, Supervisor Melgar, and Supervisor Safai, or Chair Melgar rather, for, for bringing together a couple of ideas here um, and, and putting something forward. I believe, Chair Melgar, you used the word sensible. Perhaps not shocking to, to the committee, as I, I did wish it went further. I do believe we should have density decontrols on every single lot in the city of San Francisco. That feels totally appropriate, given where we are from a crisis point of view. Um, and I understand it's a process, and I understand we are implementing our housing element, and that this was one of the key pieces of legislation to get more housing along our transit corridors. Um, I, you know, I tried to bring, thinking about the housing element, a list of state bills that have been passed, because uh, as President Peskin mentioned earlier, there's a lot happening from the state of California. Uh, and I was able to add some stuff up. Since 2017, 
which may or may not coincidentally coincide with Senator Wiener's arrival in the California State Legislature. There have been 100... I'm going to pause the speaker's time for just a moment. Oh, we need sorry. to make sure while we're taking public comment that everyone feels welcome to share their views with the committee. So make sure if you, uh, if you have an opposing view, you can display it somehow visually, but don't interrupt the, the proceedings with anything that we can hear from over here on this side of the rail. You have 44 seconds. Thank you. 115 laws have been passed and signed into law since 2017, and that's a lot. And figuring out how it works with our local rules is really, really, really important, because there are layers to it, and it's complex. Um, and as, as uh, Supervisor Preston was talking about, we, we want to avoid unintended consequences as these things are moving. That is absolutely the, the right questions to be asking as we, we try to move this forward. One thing I do just want to put a pitch for in my last 20 seconds as we're talking about incentives, there was a program in 2016, Home San Francisco, that Supervisor Safai's arrival on the Board of Supervisors helped get us more affordability in exchange for that density. That hasn't fully come to fruition, so we'd love to figure out how to incentivize these local programs so folks use those more. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your comments to the committee. Can we have the next speaker, please? Good afternoon, committee. Uh, Jane Natoli here on behalf of SFUMB. Uh, great to see you all today. I want to echo a lot of Corey's comments as well. I appreciate Chair Melgar, uh, Mayor Breed, Supervisor Safi coming together and figuring out how to merge a couple of these competing ideas that have been percolating. We're excited to see this. I think we're always looking to see where we can do a little bit more. And when we look at our commercial corridors, this is exactly the place that I think we're going to see, uh, you know, some changes. You look at some of them, you see low-slung uh, 60s banks, you see buildings that don't really match the environment we live in anymore, and I think this will give us an opportunity to think about how we use those differently, and certainly housing more people in San Francisco is a great use of that. I'm eager to see the rest of the amendments here, as I, it does not sound like we're quite at the last stop on this one, unfortunately. Uh, so we'll pay attention to see what's there, but really appreciate the work on this so far, and want to encourage you to keep finding a, a sensible plan, as Chair Melgar put it. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your comments. Let's have the next speaker, please. Hi, thank you uh, to the Housing and Land Use uh, um, group today. I'm Kate Bloomberg. I am a resident of Potrero Hill. I actually think that uh, housing, I mean that, that density uh, increases actually do a lot for our city, for all of us. They do a lot for small businesses. Uh, the, I, I, one of my favorite things about where I live is the corner store that's two blocks away. If there's more housing, if there are more people living there, there are more people who can walk to their corner store, who can bike to their, to their neighborhood facilities, who can do all of these things. And so this does a lot for us. And we, we, I heard it spoken of as a giveaway to developers. I think it's a gift to San Francisco <laughs> to have uh, this, this bill. Um, I think it's something that we really need. Uh, you look at some of those commercial corridors in the sunset, they're dying. There's nothing that can survive there. And those people have to get in their car and drive to a grocery store it shouldn't have to be that way. I can walk to six different grocery stores from my house. It's wonderful. It's a paradise. I would still like to see more density in my neighborhood. Um, I think it would just make it better. 
So I really appreciate this um, as a rent control, uh, as somebody who's lived in rent controlled housing for 23 years, I think affordability is also relative. If I wanted to leave, uh, the reason my landlord moved out is because he got MS and couldn't deal with the stairs. If we needed to leave our apartment after 23 years in rent control, we couldn't afford to stay in San Francisco. And that's why we need more housing as well. So I really appreciate this and I appreciate all your work and thank you so much. Thank you for sharing your comments. Let's have the next speaker, please. Um, my name is Jim Chappell. I'm an urban planner by training and a member of the Housing Action Coalition. As we all know, we have a desperate shortage of housing in this city. And we have a shortage for many, many different reasons. But one of the reasons is the way we have zoned our land traditionally. And that is we zone what the box is, its height, its depth, and, and, and so on. Uh, and that's the form base. And fair enough, it's a good system. And then on top of that, we put this numeric system where we control how many units we put in the box. And, and what housing is, is a box for families. So we limit the number of families uh, that can live in that building irrationally, because as the previous speaker just said, our neighborhoods are better for more density, for more families in that neighborhood. Muni is better for more people riding the bus line. So I commend this ordinance to you and I ask you to uh, look favorably upon it and do your part again today for uh, working on the housing shortage. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your comments. Let's have the next speaker, please. Hi, my name is Stacy Brandecker and I live in District 10. Um, as I have for uh, 23 of the 24 years I've lived in this city, and um, I'm trapped. I love my neighborhood. I want to stay there forever. But my youngest is going to go to college in two years. And I am in too big a place. And I'm not, it doesn't make any sense for me. Um, there's going to be nowhere for me to go. It's an interesting relationship. You know, TIC with my brother and sister-in-law who moved to Alameda and blah, 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 and whatever. And, but I will have to sell. And even though it sounds like I will get a king's ransom for the um, quarter of the um, property that I, I have, um, I won't really be able to turn that around into something else that I can afford to buy. And I'm pretty sure even to rent at the rate we're going here. We need more housing. And I did move from New York before I came here. And I love when we have vibrant neighborhoods. I love when there are people. I love when we can afford good transit. We can't afford transit. We can't afford more for our schools because we're not building and we have property taxes locked in at these ancient rates. We need more for our city and we're going to get it by building it. And it doesn't need to be Manhattan. I wouldn't mind it. Give me Paris. Six stories everywhere. Give me Paris. We could be that. So please, whatever you can do to rip the Band-Aid off of zoning and increase density and allow us to be a city instead of a glorified Mayberry, which is what we are right now. Thank you.
Thank you for sharing your comments. Let's have the next speaker, please. It's an honor to speak in front of you. My name is Kent Mercani. I'll get right to the point. Change is scary. And this is scary. And I get it that it's scary to a lot of people, and it might be scary to everybody on this wonderful board. SF is in a crisis. She's dying. I overheard Mayor London Breed say that in true SF style, she didn't just want to catch up with housing, but be a housing leader. And whatever we do here in San Francisco, the rest of the nation eventually follows. Remember when the gays were getting married right here on the steps? And it was shocking and crazy. And now it's like, oh yeah, gay marriage, you know, whatever. So what if housing becomes the next gay marriage? What if San Francisco changes everything? If we get out of Mayor London Breed's way and let her pass these wonderful bills, if we get out of her way, if I get out of her way, if y'all get out of her way, if we all collectively get out of her way and let her lead, we will have, I guarantee, homes for you and homes for me. Thank you. Do we have anyone else who has public comment on agenda item number six at this time? If so, please come forward to lectern. And if you are also waiting for your opportunity to address the committee, please line up to speak along that western wall of the room. Please begin. Uh, thank you, members of this committee. My name is Tom Peer. I am a 30-year resident of San Francisco, originally from um, Southern California. So I know that puts me as an outsider. And, and I appreciate that. And I did not come here actually to speak on this matter, but rather on the marina development proposal, which is next on your agenda item. And I feel very strongly being from Los Angeles that the, well, let me do this. I have one minute and 20 seconds left. Um, Post-World War II, there was a so-called housing shortage in Los Angeles. And the solution to that was to triple the density in the urban core of Los Angeles. I don't want to see San Francisco become Los Angeles. There just simply is not available infrastructure. There's simply not enough available space. There just simply is not what it is. Everyone wants to own a Ferrari. Everyone wants to own a Maserati. Living in San Francisco is owning a Maserati, and not everyone can do it, and I'm sorry I have to say that. I've been down in the southern part of the city, and if you bother to go down there, you will see a lot of for rent signs up. There's plenty of housing. It's just not Maserati housing. And I know that's very elitist, but it's my view. I do not want to see San Francisco become Los Angeles. Thank you for your time. Thank you for sharing your comments. Do we have anyone else who has public comment on agenda item number six? And as I mentioned earlier, if you are also waiting for your opportunity to provide your comment, please Hello, line up Hello, supervisors. To speak. My name is Rasa Moss, and I too came to talk about another, the next item, but I couldn't resist standing up 
and saying something on this because it's such an important issue. I'm one of the privileged. I have very low income. However, we bought a house in 1973 in Noe Valley, which was sort of out of Brooklyn of the old times. And it was so cheap that even we who had very little money could afford it. And so I'm one of the privileged now. I have this house. It's rent controlled. I have a rental downstairs. And that, with my social security, allows me to live quite comfortably without you know, major luxuries. And what we need to do is change the unequal in distri distribution of what exists. And there is lots of housing here that can be put to other uses. You don't have to build more luxury units. I mean, with, with, unless the city or the government in some way subsidizes the housing that is for everybody, including firemen and school teachers and people who spoke up here and said they live in San Francisco and they love it and they're lucky, but they are among the lucky. So I think that it would be a terrible crime to not re require developers who gain, gain anything by change of zoning from paying a fair share to the public by being required to have units that are lower priced. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for sharing your comments. Do we have any further comments on agenda item number six? Madam Chair. Okay, thank you. Uh, public comment on this item is now closed. Um, seeing as uh, President Peskin has uh, amendments that he is working on uh, that are not quite ready, approved as to form by the city attorney, uh, I would like to make a motion that we continue this item to uh, next week's agenda. On the motion offered by the chair that this ordinance be continued to the February 5th Land Use and Transportation Committee agenda, Vice Chair Preston. Aye. Preston, aye. Member Peskin. Aye. Peskin, aye. Chair Melgar. Aye. Melgar, aye. Madam Chair, there are three ayes. Okay, that motion passes. Um, before we go on to, uh, ladies, sorry, we, we need to go back to uh, something that we had not finalized before. Um, let's go back, uh, Mr. Clerk, to the code corrections item, which was? Agenda item number four. Number four. Agenda item number four is uh, an ordinance that makes code corrections to the planning and administrative codes. The Land Use and Transportation Committee has already heard public comment on this item, and it is now rightly before the committee. Okay, uh, President Peskin. Uh, thank you, Madam Chair. Uh, we can be very fast uh, without predisposing myself or this committee to its future consideration of the pending legislation. For the time being, let's adopt the clarification as set forth on pages 24 and 25. And if you have not done so, I will make a motion to send to amend the item with the amendments that were submitted and send it to the full board with recommendation as amended. And we will deal with articles 10 and 11 and signage at some point in the future. Thank you, President Peskin, and thank you, City Attorney, and uh, Ms. Merloni. On the motion offered by Member Peskin that the ordinance be amended and then recommended as amended, and those amendments being the amendments presented by the Planning Department earlier in this meeting. Vice Chair Preston. Preston, aye. Member Peskin. Aye. Peskin, aye. Chair Melgar. Aye. Melgar, aye. Madam Chair, there are three ayes once again. Thank you so much. Uh, now, finally, 
Uh, let's go to item number seven, please. Agenda item number seven is an ordinance prohibiting the Recreation and Park Department and Planning Department from performing environmental review of or otherwise implementing a project to clean up and reconstruct the Marina Yacht Harbor in a manner that would extend the West Harbor Marina by more than 150 feet from its current boundary. Okay, thank you so much. We have the uh, sponsor of the item, uh, Supervisor Safai, here. Welcome, uh, Supervisor Safai. Thank you. <laughs> thank you, Chair. Uh, President Peskin is trying to throw me off right before I start speaking. Um, but I want to first, I want to thank everyone from the public for being so patient. I know there was a lot of things on the agenda today, um, but as shown by the members in the community, this is a very, very important um, subject and appreciate all the work that they put into this. So thank you, Chair Melgar, for working with us to schedule this item here today. Also want to thank uh, President Peskin uh, for his partnership on this legislation and the effort to ensure that the community uh, has an opportunity uh, to be a true partner in this project planning and preserve critical city asset as remediation plans move forward. Hold, um, hold on, Supervisor. I just wanted to make an announcement that we're going to get a full presentation from the Rec Parks Department uh, before we allow for public comment. So uh, if you want to stand for this whole time, of course, you're welcome to. But uh, I would suggest that folks, you know, have a seat. And, uh, you know, as we're getting ready, uh, you can come back up and get in line for public comment. Thank you. It will be a few well, more minutes, yeah, folks. Yeah, it, it'll be a little while. We'll, we'll call you up when seats. public comment comes. It'll be a few more minutes. Just bear with us. I'm sorry. Hold on, M Mr. Clerk. Yes, Madam Chair, thank you very much. We do need to request that everyone who is here in the room please take your seats until we call for public comment. Thank you. May I proceed? Yes. Thank Go you. Ahead. Okay. So, colleagues, <clears throat> as you may recall, and I also want to say for the record, for anyone that's, that's listening, um, Supervisor Stephanie, uh, because her husband has a boat in the marina, has a conflict of interest in this item, and so has had to recuse herself from this item. So that's why I'm here working on this on behalf of the community with President Peskin, so that the community would have a, a main point of contact uh, on this particular issue. So I just wanted to say that as we begin. But uh, colleagues, as you may recall, in, in October, in response to community concern over the proposed project um, that the Rec and Park Department was presenting to a few community stakeholders, uh, I introduced uh, a resolution urging the Rec and Park Department and Commission to engage in a transparent process uh, that provided for a me meaningful community input and the development of alternative plans uh, other than what was being proposed and talked about for the marina improvement and remediation. And regardless of this legislation passing at the Board of Supervisors and despite overwhelming op opposition from the community during uh, public testimony, excuse me, the, the ordinance passing, uh, I'm, excuse me, the resolution passing, uh, the Rec and Park Department and Commission decided to move forward with the project uh, that has been talked about in the community as proposed. Uh, we have subsequently, myself, Supervisor Peskin and others, have gone out and participated in multiple community meetings that have been double the size of what you see in the audience today. And for those that are not able to see that, about a couple hundred people each time, 
along with multiple uh, emails that have come in um, on top of that, topping in the hundreds, uh, if not thousands. Uh, and these are from every single corner of San Francisco. Uh, so we have heard loud and clear from, that the community is in support of a design that accomplishes the environmental cleanup as the intent of the settlement with PG&E while preserving existing recreational uses in the marina and the harbor, in the marina green and the West Harbor space. Uh, we don't have to, in my opinion, uh, we don't have to sacrifice one thing for another. Both can be achieved, um, and that, that is what the intent of this legislation is designed to accomplish. Preserve the uses in the area of the harbor that are the most tranquil, that allow for swimming, rowing, sailing, other uses that cannot be done in other parts of the marina. They must be done in this area. Um, we will have a presentation today from Sarah Madlin, from Director of Policy and Public Affairs from Recreation and Park Department. And I also believe we'll have Monica Scott, the Project Manager um, at the Capitol and Planning Division for Rec and Park. We also have our budget and legislative analyst, even though he just stepped out for a minute, he, he should be back, uh, Nick Menard and Alex Thibodeau, who completed a financial analysis of the Marina Yacht Harbor. And I would suggest that we move to the presentation of Reckon Park first, um, and then we can follow up by the BLA, and then if it's okay with you, Chair, then we can go, after anyone else has anything else to say, we can go to comments. But I, I would like to, um, before we go to the presentation, if, if President Peskin, if you have anything to say now, or you can do it later, great. Okay, I particularly want to thank Aaron Roach and Evelyn um, from the community that have been involved in leading the conversations, working with neighbors extensively to channel the voices and ensure that everyone in the community has a place to have their voice heard. So I specifically want to call those two out. Um, and I know there's many other people. I think I see Joe in the back um, who's moderated many of the meetings um, and others. So thank you very much, Chair, and we can go to presentation from Reckon Park. I'll reserve my other comments till later. Thank you, Supervisor Safai. We're now uh, joined by Sarah Madlin uh, with the Rec Park Department. Welcome. Thank you. Good afternoon, Supervisors. Sarah Madlin for the Recreation and Parks Department. Um, about to take you through a quick presentation um, and address uh, some of the things that Supervisor Safai mentioned in his opening. Um, to start, let me familiarize you with the Marina Yacht Harbor. This is one of the oldest recreational marinas operating in San Francisco and is technically composed of two harbors, uh, what we call the East Harbor or Gashouse Cove on the right by Fort Mason um, and the West Harbor, the harbor that you see there along Marina Green. The East Harbor includes uh, concessions selling fuel, an active marina, parkland with a public restroom, and two parking lots. The West Harbor consists of an active marina, the St. Francis and Golden Gate Yacht Clubs, our Harbor Master's Office, uh, and parkland that also includes, okay, um, that also includes a restroom, oh, thank you, and a concession stand and parking lots. Um, the entire facility covers approximately 35 acres. The marinas contain 727 berths, including 15 guest berths, free pump-out stations, uh, and, and as I mentioned, the commercial fuel dock. The marina is also home to the much-beloved wave organ. 
Before 1906, a, a PG&E predecessor owned and operated a gold gas ugh, coal gasification, say that three times, uh, plant near the Marina Green that produced the contaminants that we now find in the East Harbor. Uh, for many years, almost 20, the city and PG&E went back and forth to determine both the amount of contamination, the responsibility, and figure out how to address this issue. Finally, as you know, supervisors, um, we, uh, the, a settlement was approved by the board, and since that settlement has been approved, the department and PG&E have been working to develop this project and engaging in public outreach and engagement. This past October, the Recreation and Park Commission directed staff to update the financial projections for the harbor and evaluate the minimum number of viable slips. They also directed us to come back to them with a design that keeps as many slips as possible in the East Harbor. So I did just want to clarify that the project has not been approved at our commission, and they gave us explicit direction based on this public feedback uh, to analyze other options. Um, we are currently in that process. This is an incredibly complex project. Uh, and we are evaluating all of those options and the fiscal feasibility. To, to then be able to submit a project for environmental review, which you all know in this case likely will take about two years as this will be a full EIR. So just to remind you of that settlement that you all approved, there were three main goals. Increase public access and amenities, environmental remediation, and a fiscally sustainable marina. The final settlement agreement also capped the cost of the project at $190 million. So what we set out to do was to create a project that met all of those goals and was able to be built under that cap. That resulted in the project you see here on the screen. Uh, that project is what we began to do public engagement around. And as you noted, Supervisor, uh, this created a lot of feedback. <laughs> uh, to say the least. Uh, we call that loving your parks loudly in our line of business. Um, it is important to note that this is an incredibly complex project. It is in water where everything from tides, wave actions, and sand movement need to be taken into consideration by engineers. It is also a remediation project, which as you know is highly regulated. Um, and as a result of a legal settlement, has all of those constraints associated with it too. Um, as you know, but just for those who may not be as familiar, the uh, project suggested moving the slips, some, some slips from the inner East Harbor, what is called the shallow water basin on this slide, um, to the West Harbor in that red area. So, um, as I said, we are in the process of evaluating how to keep as many slips out of that area as possible, um, but today I want to focus on the impacts of this ordinance on both the project and the financial sustainability of the marina. So, um, with a 150-foot limitation in the East Harbor, we would see a significant slip reduction um, in the total um, yes, West, excuse me. Thank you, Supervisor. Um, we would see a significant reduction in the number of slips in the overall marina and particularly in the East Harbor, um, where we would go from 359 slips to 165 slips. Uh, we would also not be able to have a fuel dock in the marina. 
Uh, we are told by many that having a fuel dock is an important amenity and could affect the desirability of a marina. Um, we would also not be able to build a breakwater at the West Harbor, um, and the project would not include the many of the public access uh, improvements that we hoped to achieve. Um, the slip reductions, as I said, would reduce the overall marina from 736 slips to 542. Um, and as I noted in the east, we would have about 165 slips there. Um, this obviously would result in decreased revenue for the department uh, with fewer slips. I want to talk a little bit about the fuel dock, which is currently in the East Harbor and in the project was proposed to be in the West. Um, the, the fuel dock is used by SFPD and the SF Fire Department, as well as the Coast Guard, recreational boaters, commercial fishermen. Um, and as I mentioned, the, the lack of an on-site fuel dock could decrease demand for slips. Keep that in mind when we move forward to the financial productions, because that interplay will become uh, important. Finally, currently, fueling um, of your boat through a gas can is prohibited in the marina because of issues around water contamination and fire hazards. Um, and this would inevitably likely lead to people having to do that. As you can see on the map, without this fuel dock, the closest fuel dock that has gasoline, not just diesel, um, is 3.7 nautical miles away in Sausalito. Uh, additionally, under the ordinance, we would not be able to build a breakwater in the West Harbor. Without a breakwater in the West, dredging issues will continue due to ongo ongoing sedimentation and shoaling. Additionally, the marina neighborhood is vulnerable to flooding due to sea level rise. Based on studies done by the San Francisco port for areas at similar elevations to the marina, a breakwater would delay onset of waterfront flooding by decades. Further analysis is required to, to confirm the level of protection the breakwater would, excuse me, would provide. Um, but without that, we do not have protection, waterfront flood protection, or protection from wave action or storms, storm surges in the marina. Uh, these, this ordinance would significantly impact the project and the elements of the project, um, uh, what we're able to deliver within it. And it is our view that these changes need to be socialized with the stakeholders and the boaters um, to understand the feedback on those. So we talked about the changes that this would create in the actual projects. What does it do to the finances of a marina? There are significant financial impacts of this ordinance as well. Currently, based on an annual survey of area marinas, we have one of the most expensive marinas in the Bay Area. The Budget and Land Legislative Analyst Report, which you will hear later, uh, sorry to spoil you guys' announcement, <laughs> um, determined that a 31.4% increase would be needed to berthing rates now to cover operating expenses. And following renovation, rates would need to increase again under this ordinance. It's important to note that this is on top of what is effectively a 40% increase for 
slipholders in the East Harbor. Currently, slipholders in the East Harbor pay a rate significantly lower than those in the West because the East has not been renovated and does not have the same amenities. It's contemplated that once the East is renovated, those rates will move up to West Harbor rates, which are 40% higher. So it would be 40 plus any additional increase um, for those folks. Uh, we're, we remain concerned that if rates are raised so much that they drive people away, that will jeopardize the marina's ability to uh, operate independently and also our ability to repay the loan associated with this project. Further, the proposed breakwater in the West Harbor will reduce the dredging obligations in the West Harbor. Without a breakwater, those obligations remain and need to be paid for out of the marina fund. We estimate they cost somewhere between $600,000 and $1 million annually. Um, obviously, they vary based on storm uh, surges, et cetera. Um, as I mentioned, this is a highly complex project with many, many regulatory agencies, some of which you see here on the screen. Um, we understand that the, that the feedback this legislation intends to address is, inc excuse me, we understand the feedback we are trying to address here, um, but feel that this legislation is an incredibly blunt instrument in a complex project. It involves multiple types of engineering and design professionals, including coastal remediation, hydraulic and structural engineers, marina designers, landscape architects, and computer modelers to study the impacts of sediment transport and shoaling, sea level rise, and the hydrodynamics of the bay. Um, and again, this is the result of a settlement agreement. Unilaterally changing this agreement presents challenges for the project and introduces serious instability into future settlements. We thank you for your time. We really do understand the issues that this legislation is trying to respond to and the feedback that the public has given. And our hope is that we can work together to address those issues in a way that allows us to deliver a project that is financially sustainable, meets the goals and the cost limitations of the FSA, and addresses that public feedback. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Madlin. Uh, Supervisor Safai, I think Thank you. you need to stay there, <laughs> sorry. Thank you. Um, I just want to clarify one thing. Uh, I, I don't want the public or anyone out in the audience to get stuck on what Ms. Madeline said about the requirement to raise 40, the um, cost of having a boat in the East Harbor overall by 40%. We're going to hear from the BLA. That's one of the options. It's not the only option, there's multiple options to consider revenue. So that's one point in particular. But um, the, the main question I have for you, Ms. Madeline, is, and I asked you this um, when we met and you presented, Reckon Park has done a tremendous job all over San Francisco working with philanthropy and raising private money for major renovation projects, okay? And your general thesis is, if we are to stay within the parameters of a $190 million settlement, it constrains your ability to do things. But what have you done to go out and raise private capital, work with philanthropy, and get private donations for any potential project or redesign for this area? You've done it in India Basin. 
You're going to do it in Crocker Amazon with the San Francisco Giants on the project that is near and dear to my heart for our neighborhood, for baseball fields. Jackson Square Playground is doing it. What has Reckon Park done to go out and raise private dollars? And the reason I highlight that is because you already took a multi-million dollar loan to do over part of the West Harbor that you're paying back at the cost of a, a million five in debt surface annually. There is needs to be done in this harbor regardless of the settlement. The settlement is primarily in, about environmental remediation and contamination first and foremost. And you're not fully addressing that even in your own proposal. You're only partly addressing that. So I just, I have, to, I have to ask you very clearly, what has the department done to go out and raise private capital? Because that's a, that's a change, it's a game changer in terms of the conversation with the overall design. So first, if I may, I'm happy to answer that question, but first, if I may, I was not referring to the budget and legislative analyst report mm. recommendations on rate increases to make the harbor sustainable under this ordinance. I was uh, referring to the fact that currently the West Harbor rates are significantly lower than the East Harbor rates, um, and that is uh, widely understood and always been part of our plan that, please, uh, refrain from uh, making sounds that interrupt the speaker. Thank you. And, and that when the East was renovated, those rates would equalize. So separate and apart from any additional rate increases associated with how the project is built, um, a boater in the East Harbor who currently has a slip and stays on would effectively feel that 40% increase and then any additional increase on top of it. So I just want to clarify, I was yeah. not referring to that report. Well, yeah, you, you referred to this legislation passing, and if it did, it would require rates to increase, and I don't agree with that premise. That's, that's, that's my main point. But can you answer the, the main question about private fundraising and what you have Absolutely. done? Absolutely. We have not pursued private fundraising right. in this project. Not all of our projects are suitable for something like that. As you noted, two major projects, we operate 224 parks. Um, actually more than that now with the, the addition of the Mission Bay Parks. Um, and very few of them are, uh, are places where philanthropy is is appropriate or um, possible. I, this I is a major. Say, I'm, I'm sorry to cut you off, but I would just imagine that if you put it out to the amount of people that are interested all over San Francisco for this particular use, for all the different constituencies that we've talked about, I think there would be a tremendous outpouring of support and desire. So I get it. I named three. I only named three. I, I yes, keep, but I, I just want to clarify that in our experience, we have used philanthropy to improve capital projects. And um, our challenge here is not with building the harbor. The challenge we are referring to is about operate, having enough slips to operate it. And so I just want to distinguish the, the difference between capital, uh, between philanthropy for capital and philanthropy for operations. I, I understand, but part of the premise of what you said is, and, and we're going to hear that in the BLA's report, is that there's a finite amount of money, and if there's a desire to do more remediation in the East Harbor, it eats up a certain amount of, and part of the reason why you want to move the boats is because you want to cap the environmental settlement at a very low depth. And again, 
we're going to hear from the legislative analysts. We're going to hear from many people in the community. My point in bringing up that if philanthropy and private donors are involved, you can raise the amount of money and you can have a very different design, which impacts the overall project uh, that we're talking about. So Understood. I think it's, it's not 100% um, legitimate to say you can't have a fueling station, you can't have more boats in the East Harbor, you don't have enough money to do a breakwater if we haven't fully pursued the ability to raise private capital to partner with our public dollars. That's my point. I, I understood, and I apologize for, for not fully understanding that. I'm, I should caveat all of my comments that under the final settlement agreement, which is capped at $190 million, those would be the impacts. That's fair. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, and I, I would like to call up the uh, BLA, uh, Nick Menard and his team, to go over kind of at a high level. I know there's a lot of detail in the report, uh, Mr. Menard, but the best you can do to condense. We, uh, thank you, Supervisor Safai, through the chair, Nick Menard from the Budget Legislative Analyst Office. I'm here with my colleague, Alex Thibodeau. Uh, we have prepared a report for you in the legislative uh, that really addresses the financial impact of uh, this ordinance that would limit, you know, the project scope um, for remediating, remediating the marina, what this ordinance does to the financial condition of the marina. There is some table setting uh, that we, in context, we need to provide to fully understand, you know, what the impact is. So we've prepared a short presentation for you today, and I'm going to hand it over to Alex Thibodeau. Good afternoon to the board. My name is Alex Thibodeau. I'm an analyst with the Budget and Le Legislative Analyst Office. I'm here with my colleague, Nick Menard. Um, we were tasked by Supervisors Peskin and Supervisor Safai to um, conduct a financial analysis to the Marina Yacht Harbor that includes fee revenue generated um, by the operating fund, the general uh, fund subsidy, and possible strategies to reduce or eliminate the general fund subsidy to the marina. So I want to start off by doing a brief overview of the Marina Yacht Harbor budget. Um, the Marina Yacht Harbor Fund is a largely self-contained special revenue fund administered by the Recreation and Parks Department. As you can see here, we have the operating and capital funds for fiscal year 2023 to 2024. Um, starting off with the capital fund, um, Primarily, so first of all, let's get the uh, PG&E settlement out of the way. This is a one-time allocation of $11 million that RPD intends to carry forward um, when the construction on the East Harbor remediation eventually begins. Um, otherwise, the capital fund is pretty focused on um, dredging costs. I believe Sarah mentioned in her presentation that these can incur anywhere between $600,000 to $1 million per year. Um, a lot of this is captured by dredging fees, which are a surcharge applied on top of monthly uh, berthing fees for harbor tenants. Um, otherwise, other uh, sources and uses within the capital fund also goes towards dredging. Um, RPD mentioned to us that a lot of the facilities maintenance, um, a lot of the operating revenue transfers, um, and some of the Department of Boating and Waterways loan reserve went to the past fiscal year's dredging obligations. Moving towards the operating fund, um, most of these uses are intended for the salaries and fringe benefits of, I believe, 11 full-time equivalent employees at the Marina Yacht Harbor. Otherwise, um, 
uses include the debt service uh, to the Department of Boating and Waterworks for a 2013 West Harbor remediation project, capital transfer, non-personnel service, materials, so on and so forth. Um, in this particular fiscal year, the operating budget was $4.8 million. Sources for these um, are primarily the East and West Harbor fees. Um, currently, as Sarah said, there are 727 berths at between the East and West Harbors. However, because of deterioration to the East Harbor, tenants moving out in preparation for the remediation project, the potential revenue and the current vacancy rate in the East Harbor is much lower, which um, is indicated by the disparity between um, the two harbors' uh, operating budgets. Um, there's also permit revenue, um, so these would be for special events that are held landside in the Marina Green. Um, and then we also have the concession revenue uh, from the St. Francis Yacht Harbor, the Golden Gate Yacht Club, or sorry, St. Francis Yacht Club, Golden Gate Yacht Club, um, as well as the various uh, food trucks and vendors that are there permanently and intermittently throughout the year. Finally, um, as you can see, the general fund uh, subsidy to the marina covers the um, shortfall that uh, the operating revenue currently cannot cover without uh, support from the general fund. Um, in this particular fiscal year, $592,000 um, was allocated to the operating fund in order to cover the shortfall. In addition to this subsidy that covers the shortfall, uh, Parks and Rec also has various structural maintenance needs. So this can include work that is done by the structural maintenance yard, urban forestry, gardening. Um, that is an additional, what in 2020, fiscal year 2022 was amounted to $270,000. Um, in that particular year, total general fund support to the Marina Yacht Harbor totaled $956,077. Um, any revenue adjustment that we are looking at later on in our report is going to be based off of this total um, collective general fund support to the marina. Part of our report uh, consisted of, and part of the policy request from the supervisors um, was a comparison with regional harbors in the area. So there are 36 regional harbors, all of which responded to, in 2023, a harbor master survey that included um, responses from Scott Grindy as well as the other 35 regional harbors in the Bay Area. And these included things like, included information such as rates, amenities, um, other key critical information about um, the characteristics of the harbors. As you can see in the table below, one of our key findings, and Sarah had alluded to this in her presentation, is that the Marina Yacht Harbor hosts the highest rates out of any harbor in um, the region for pretty much every single slip size, except I believe um, slip size 35 feet. Um, I think they have the highest or the third highest. And what this um, amounts to is that they are so far above the median and average rate per foot um, that a 40-foot vessel at the Marina Yacht Harbor will incur $903 a month in berthing charges, while the median 40-foot vessel would incur $488 a month. The East Harbor, so these are rates listed for the, the West Harbor. The East Harbor is currently charged at a much lower rate um, that reflects primarily uh, the average rates seen across the regional harbors. Um, another finding that we found is that the Marina Yacht Harbor amenities are pretty standard across all the regional harbors. Um, 
amenities that are typically seen at other harbors are seen at the marina and vice versa. Amenities that aren't typically seen are not also seen at the marina. The key exceptions to that is that the marina yacht harbor has a fuel dock, and that is only true of, I think, of maybe 12 to 13 other harbors in the area. Um, and then liveaboards are not prohibited or are prohibited at the marina. Um, and then finally, the Marina Yacht Harbor offers slips greater than 80 feet in size. So I think that equates to nine, or sorry, four 90-foot slips and one 100-foot slip. So when we're looking at viable options for an independent marina, we're essentially looking at three different evaluation criterias. So first of all, we want to ensure that the implementation has generates robust fiscal impact. Um, we essentially want it to be able to move the needle significantly. There are certainly various small things that can be adjusted within the operating revenue fund, um, like certain a la carte fees can be raised, but we really wanted to focus on, on big picture, big impact uh, implementations. Secondly, it must be feasible to implement, so something that is under the purview of the Board of Supervisors and the Recreation and Parks Department, and then something that is also economically feasible. So, of course, we can, you know, have a wish list of everyone at the marina pays, you know, 7,000 times their current fees, but we want to ensure that we have evidence to back up that these various stakeholders will be able to absorb any sort of price increases or price changes. Finally, um, the implementation must be able to produce reliable revenue. So here we really prioritize fixed rather than variable costs. So something, uh, changes that could be made to the operating fund specifically um, that we would be able to see consistent revenue generated from and doesn't necessarily vary from season to season or year to year. So the first implementation strategy that we looked at is that harbor fees could increase by 31.4% to completely eliminate the general fund support to the marina. How we did this is we took fiscal year 2024-2025, the budgeted revenues and expenditures for that year as a baseline. Um, we added a flat 3% increase to all uh, revenues and expenditures, and I'm going to try to pull out the key information for those in the back who aren't able to see the tables quite clearly. Um, but essentially, we increased everything by 3%, completely removed the general fund subsidy, and we're looking for that number um, that the East and West Harbor fees would need to increase by, and that's how we got that 31%. When it comes to the question of feasibility, this is really going to rely on the demand elasticity of tenants at the harbors. Um, what is unknown is the extent to which tenants will accept a rate increase, but what is known is that there are indicators of surplus demand at the marina. So for one, um, I believe it was in 2020 or 2021, there was a, the dredging surcharge was applied for West Harbor tenants, which effectively increased their rates by 21%, and RPD anecdotally informed us that there was virtually zero departures from the wait list um, or from the birthing, um, or sorry, or from the harbor tenants themselves. Finally, there is a wait list of, I believe, about 150 um, individuals waiting for um, slips at the West Harbor, um, which indicates that there is uh, there is ample room to increase rates and, and not lose um, a net number of patrons. Um, that being said, we can't definitively say whether this 31% can be absorbed. Um, the Marina Yacht Harbor is considered a luxury good. Um, there are vacancies in other regional harbors. I think the regional vacancy rate is 18%, so there is room to move elsewhere. Um, and so there's probably a need to assess this number further. 
Secondly, we looked at the possibility of implementing paid parking to the marina. Um, so we did sort of a, a similar, um, well actually let me, let me rewind. In 2019, RPD solicited a parking feasibility study from the uh, SFMTA um, and they took rates that were set at the nearby Fort Mason lot and assessed um, total one-time and continuing implementation costs. Um, they looked at uh, various, um, yeah, they looked at occupancy rates and came to a five-year projection of what those uh, revenues from paid parking would would be. Um, we set out those projections a little further using the same methodology, again, a standard 3% increase across all revenues and expenditures, um, and found that the first year of implementing parking, there would be a modest positive revenue of, I believe, in fiscal year 2024, 46,000, um, whereas in later years, uh, that would be increased to 789,000 and 812,000, respectively. Um, this would require the park code to be amended by the board. Um, and then also, as you can see in the table below, the marina net income, including all the additional revenues and expenditure increases from the prior fiscal year, um, would not, the parking implementation would not quite totally cover general fund support to the marina. There would still be a shortfall of 170,000 or so in the next, in the following few years. Um, and in order to overcome this, berthing fees, as we calculated, could be increased by 5% as opposed to their typical 3% in order to break even. So our previous analysis assessed what needs to happen for the general fund subsidy to go away immediately, essentially in the following fiscal year after 24-25. Um, now we want to take into account two key considerations, one of them being the gas house code remediation in which Sarah had um, described in her presentation. So regards to the remediation process, this was settled in 2021, and there is, as you can see in the table, a total of $190 million. This number is set by the final settlement agreement while the project components are not. So those project components include demolishing all East Harbor docks, dredging the northern part of the East Harbor, um, installing a sediment cap in the south, uh, southern half of the East Harbor, reconstructing 172 slips in the East Harbor, expanding the West Harbor by 235 slips, implementing a new breakwater and moving the fuel dock to the West Harbor. Um, you can see the cost estimates for those project components listed above. Anything up to the $130 million price mark plus $30 million contingency is going to be paid at a rate of 91% by PG&E and then 9% to be reimbursed to PG&E by the city. Again, these numbers are completely settled by the final settlement agreement. Um, of course, there's also the ordinance that is prohibiting the expansion of the West Harbor by 150 feet, which changes possible remediation designs, ultimately changing revenue potentials. And so what the BLA did was we looked at these four different scenarios um, in order to determine the marina's financial viability in each one. The first scenario is essentially the status quo. This would be the case if there were no project um, and no ordinance were enacted. Um, we included a table to show how we forecasted this. This table won't be included in later slides, but just again showing that in order to make this financial model, we increased all operating and revenue expenditures, or all operating um, revenues and expenditures by 3% um, in order to uh, 
see what the financial forecast would be through fiscal year 2036. Assuming there are no changes to slips, rates, or expenditures outside of the annual 3% escalation, the marina will need a same-year fee increase of about 27.4% to cover the loss of general fund support within the same year. So I really want to clarify what this means, or I think it's 20, yeah, 27.6, I'm sorry. Um, what this means is within the same exact year, how much would fees need to increase in order to cover the extant general fund subsidy. Um, that is different from the prior 30% estimate that we gave when accounting for a next year increase that incorporates the escalation of all other expenditures and revenue. In scenario two, we look at how the project would be executed per what is outlined in the final settlement agreement. So the assumptions that we consider are that those slips will be reconstructed in the East Harbor. We use an average of I think it was 35 foot slips at 90% occupancy to make this particular forecast, and we have erased them to the West Harbor rate. Um, as Sarah had alluded to, this would constitute a um, specific East Harbor fee increase of 40%, and that has been planned by RPD in order to um, cover the debt service to PG&E, is what they told us. Um, additionally, 235 slips would be added to the West Harbor. Um, and then we project that this would include the $130 million project cost plus $30 million consistent, or contingency, which would produce a $480,000 a year debt service beginning three years after construction. And what we found under the scenario, and again, we phased it out to fiscal year 2036 because there are going to be different phases of income um, that the marina will see under any sort of um, remediation project with PG&E. There's going to be pre-construction. There's going to be the phase uh, during construction when slips are left unattended and, um, and empty. Uh, there's going to be the phase in which revenue has begun uh, from the newly reconstructed slips, um, but debt service hasn't begun. And then finally, there's going to be a period in which debt service has begun under the um, auspices of the uh, increased revenue. So again, under this scenario, the marina stands to generate approximately $1.3 million in net income when construction ends, and then once debt service begins, that'll be reduced to a surplus of $952,000. Um, what we want to emphasize here that I don't think Sarah had alluded to in her presentation is that this gives the marina the, excuse me, and this gives the marina the ability to address the deferred maintenance costs to the marina. Um, there is currently an ongoing capital fund, but given life cycle analyses of the marina yacht harbors, ongoing maintenance expenditures and life cycle analysis of their assets and infrastructure, there is an excess $1.3 million expected annually that is currently not being funded that could potentially be funded under this um, particular project. Um, under this project, under this scenario, there is no need for additional general fund support or supplemental revenue um, strategies to achieve financial independence. Third, we have the project that is under the ordinance, so it's a modified project. Uh, under this scenario, we have the same reconstructed slips at the East Harbor, no additional slips at the West Harbor, and again, because of a uh, modified project, the debt service goes down because of the lack of construction payments made in expanding the West Harbor. So this would only be a $390,000 a year debt service beginning three years after construction. Under this scenario, net income at the marina would produce a shortfall of $521,000 when construction ends, and then $959,000 when debt service begins. Um, 
because of this, collective harbor fees must increase 12% when construction ends and 20% when debt service begins. In order to address the capital spending needs, fees must increase by a total of 32%. Lastly, we have the modified project under the proposed ordinance with the base expenditures cap. Um, so we have been told by RPD that the general fund subsidy to the marina is likely to go away after this year because of budget cuts and expenditures are likely to be frozen at actual spending levels in fiscal year 2022-23. Um, so we incorporate this in our model with all the assumptions from the previous model um, and find that the collective harbor fees, because there are limited expenditures escalated from that frozen 2022 baseline, fees must increase at the East and West Harbor by 15% um, by the time debt service begins in order to address the net income shortfall of $750,000. So as kind of a recap, um, we have these four scenarios. We really only found one scenario, which is the remediation project as proposed by the final settlement agreement to produce um, a, any kind of break-even um, outcome without raising fees, and this would produce a surplus of $1 million per year. It still would require a fee increase from the East Harbor at approximately 40% given the intent to equalize rates from the East Harbor with the West Harbor. Otherwise, these modified remediation projects will require fee increases between 15 and 20% in order to cover operating revenue expenditures. Thank you so much for your time, and Nicholas and I are available to take questions. Thank you. Thank you, Madam Chair. You're welcome, uh, Supervisor Safai. So I actually do have a couple of questions uh, for you um, from, I guess, I, you know, I'm Chair of Land Use. I'm also on the Budget <laughs> Committee. So I um, am looking at these numbers, and it's, you know, important to me that we get it right in a uh, year where we have a deficit and will for a few years probably. Um, so uh, if we increase uh, fees, as you have stated under scenario uh, three or four, mm -hmm. um, you know, assuming that we're not gonna have the status quo or you know, there's so much opposition to the um, Rec Park Department's uh, proposal uh, that we're not gonna proceed with that. Um, I'm wondering if part of the uh, BLA analysis uh, was a market analysis uh, in terms of, you know, uh, can that fee be supported by demand? If, you know, we heard from Ms. Madeline that already uh, our marina is the most expensive, which makes sense. I mean, our real estate is the most expensive, right, in the Bay Area. Well, not the most, but but pretty up there. Um, would be we be able to rent out enough slips to support your analysis? Um, I mean, we have a waiting list as it is now, so I imagine there's some wiggle room there. But but how how much is that upper limit? Yeah, and that's kind of the uh, obstacle that we ran into in our analysis as well, because we did see that there were you know objective demand indicators that indicated that there were. You know, there's elasticity in the demand that allows for us, uh, for the board and RPD to increase fees um, by a certain amount in order, and then not lose any significant patronage. We did not do a fully fleshed out market study. Um, in order to do that, we would have probably had to go back uh, 
within the park code and, and fee schedules by several years to kind of get that number. Um, and that just wasn't in the scope of our report. So this was more of a policy consideration that this is the number, uh, what needs to be reached in order to break even with current expenditures. Um, there is indication that there is wiggle room, but probably further, you know, someone needs to take a, a closer look at it to determine to what extent, if it is 31%, that harbor tenants can absorb that rate increase. Okay, thank you so much. I appreciate that. Um, so can I ask Ms. Madeline the same question? Um, so I know that when I spoke to uh, you and folks in your department, um, you, uh, you guys are having a, a financial feasibility analysis of some sort. I don't, is, does, is this included in the analysis that you're doing? So we are working uh, with an independent uh, person who specializes in marinas on this. It's the same person the city attorney's office consulted when developing this final settlement agreement, um, uh, mapping out multiple scenarios, um, including different levels of occupancy um, of the harbor. We, we average about 87% occupancy, but obviously that can fluctuate um, and might fluctuate based on, on price increases. So we are um, including that. We have not specifically asked him to do sort of a market analysis of to figure out where the point of diminishing marginal returns is, essentially. <laughs> um, but we could add that to the scope if the, if the board is interested in looking at further fees and figuring out exactly where they could land. Okay, um, I do have another question for you, um, which nobody has talked about. Um, that is, you know, I'm a mom in San Francisco, and I know that the Marina Green is often used for recreational soccer. Not legit, not like, you know, it doesn't go through your system, but, but we do use it for, you know, micro soccer yes. and informal soccer games. And so um, I wonder what um, any of these four proposals would do uh, to uh, that activity. Activity, both in terms of like, you know, if we add uh, slips, you know, do we also add more people? Is there more demand for parking, more, you know, competition for space? Because, you know, as you know, we have a huge shortage of recreational soccer fields and informal soccer fields in the city, and I would hate to lose that uh, from this area. Um, it's a good question. Um, so we do permit micro soccer down there on um, Saturdays, and you've probably been and seen there's a ton of people. Um, there is a large amount of parking at the marina. I don't have the slip, the excuse me, the slot space number off the top of my head. Um, one of the challenges with, I think the challenge would primarily be around uh, the suggestion the budget analyst made around paid parking at the marina and um, the response to that. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, paid parking is intended to increase turnover, and so that would likely help families coming down trying to find a spot there, um, but I'm not sure what the, the reaction would be. There are also in the lots um, permitted spots for slip holders both Saturday, Sunday, and holidays, and then a, f uh, a lesser number for um, all the time. So the the slip holders, um, if we kept the number even, would still have access to the same number of parking spots. Okay. Does that answer your yes. question? Yes. Okay. Thank you, Ms. Madeline. Um, so I had one last question, and that is to our deputy city attorney, um, because during her presentation, uh, Ms. Madeline talked about, um, you know, sort of this was a settlement that was entered 
into by two sides, and now it's a change unilaterally. So I, um, I remember voting on this, but I don't remember the details, right? It's already been a couple of years. So I'm wondering, is that, is that, it does putting, uh, you know, this kind of uh, restriction, 150 feet, um, do anything in terms of messing with the settlement um, and, you know, how we can proceed forward? Deputy City Attorney Ann Pearson, um, the settlement was also before my time, oh, but my understanding is that um, the parties agreed in principle to a project, but were not bound by a project description, in part because CEQA had not been, the CEQA analysis was not complete, so the city couldn't commit to a particular project. I believe the settlement included certain key elements of a project, um, but the project itself was not finalized. So, um, you know, adding to the scope of the project or, um, you know, including more funding beyond what the settlement limit is uh, would not necessarily mess with the settlement. Um, I don't know the answer to that question, but I would be happy to advise you confidentially about any potential risk to the settlement. Okay. Uh, thank you, Ms. Pearson. Um, okay, do we have any questions or comments from any of my colleagues? No, I... Okay, so uh, with that, uh, let's go to public comment. Mr. Clerk, thank, thank you. Thank you, Madam Chair. We'll now take public comment on agenda, agenda item number seven. Please line up to speak along that western wall of the room, and if the first speaker is ready, please come forward to lectern for your comments. Hi there, um, thank you. Uh, thank you for all your work. Thank you for Park and Recs. I've been a long time user for all the Park and Recs uh, usages. I very much appreciate the work they do and the preps, of the, all the facilities that they provide for us. Um, been in San Francisco since 1990. I like to call myself an honorary native, although natives say no, <laughs> that doesn't work. Um, I lived across the city, Mission, North Beach, Castro, Twin Peaks, um, and now in the marina. But I can tell you, since 1990, I went to the Marina Green, coming from Costa Rica, coming from nature, and being in this city jungle, finding a place to escape. <clears throat> I might get a little emotional. Um, it's a very meaningful place to me. It's a place I go for um, refuge, for, um, to say goodbye to a loved one. Um, it's a place for meditation to recollect myself, be able to operate as a person in, in civilization, in a very crowded civilization. Listening to the things that are happening in the city, we're encroaching so much more in our open spaces. I urge you to take the steps necessary to keep public access to the Marina Green uh, waterfront um, in support of this ordinance to making sure that when I bring my nephews, who are two, uh, six, and seven, that we are able to sit at that waterfront and not stare at other people's property, but rather at nature. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your comments. Let's have the next speaker, please. I thank you for having me present to you. My name is Susan Ford. I live in District 3, and I appreciate uh, Mr. Peskin's uh, support of opposition or this new ordinance. I have lived in San Francisco since 1996, and I find that 
the open space is what makes this city very, very special. And I also want to say that I've been very concerned about environmental encroachment on all of the bay, as some of the steps have been remedial and helpful, like reclaiming the salt marshes. But um, I followed the leaks at Hyde Street, where oil was continuously dumped into the bay, and I believe it still is. I don't think anything has been done. And I find this pro proposition of more boats and more gasoline floating on the water and perhaps bills dump and all the rest of it really unsatisfactory on many, many ways, not the least of which it's a very nice open space to see the rest of the world and enjoy the bay. Um, I am very concerned about the environmental impact and I really would suggest that the Parks and Rec right now has overreached in terms of trying to use remedial information to expand the income to the city. And the intent of our nature and our whole Bay Area makes this San Francisco a very special place, not just to live here, but to visit and to have as a resource for ourselves. And so I urge you to pass this ordinance which restricts and limits the amount of remediation uh, to the place that was designated, which is the Gas House Harbor. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your comments. Let's have the next speaker, please. So, supervisors, again, I'm Rasa Moss, and I've been living in San Francisco since 1967. And um, I and many, many other people from the other different parts of town come to the marina and meet friends there and walk and just look at the open water. The idea of walking past more slips, like there's just a little bit of the seawall left where you can actually sit on a bench or walk by and look at the open water. Everywhere else you're looking at boats. Now, it's not the same. And this is our right. I mean, we had formed the Bay Protection Plan and the Coastal Plan f so that people could have access, free access to the water not for any paid activity, but free as our right. And I think this plan is not acceptable. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your comments. Let's have the next speaker, please. Good afternoon, Ozzie Rome with Noe Neighborhood Council and San Francisco Aligners Coalition. Um, I urge um, Chair Melgar, President Peskin, Supervisors, please reject this plan. I don't think that Reckon Park is negotiating in good faith. Um, you saw it right here. You're asking about, Supervisor Safai, you're asking about fundraising and they're changing the subject. What about Park Alliance? You know, they use Park Alliance to do fundraising. You know, they are expert at that. Why don't they do that? This is a public amenity. Public amenities should be left for public, for the residents of San Francisco. I live in Noe Valley. I assure you that there is no view of Marina Green from my house. <laughs> so I'm only here because I am offended by a city agency that is taking our public amenity and is giving it to the moneyed class. Is this oligarchy at its worst? I suppose it is. 
And if, I mean, I haven't seen this many people showing up at the city hall angered and completely surprised at what is happening to the city of San Francisco. So I'm urging you to do something about this. This public amenities should be left to the public. This is not oligarchy. Yacht owners, 500 of them, 250 of them, they do not have higher precedent over us, the public, common people. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your comments. Let's have the next speaker, please. Good afternoon, Mr. President, supervisors. Uh, we've heard a lot about the open space. Uh, I want to address, and I'm, it's unfortunate that the city attorney's office is, has walked out of the room. Uh, they're proposing a yacht harbor, more traffic in an area that is heavily used by on-water recreational users. Uh, first of all, a tremendous liability for the city because somebody's going to get run over. It will happen. And Reckon Park is now on notice. Second of all, I regularly, over the 40 years that I have been in the city, row from east of the area to the Golden Gate. In the last five or six years, on each and every row, I have encountered swimmers coming along the south shoreline that where this yacht harbor will be, particularly from Gas House to the Wave Organ, because swimmers, kayakers, stand-up boarders take that route to avoid the currents and the rough water, and then they go out north to the Wave Organ. And this is exactly where the increased traffic will take place. It makes no sense. Uh, Rec and Park staff have been handcuffed by the commission that is deaf to the people who speak to it. Uh, they have strict guidelines that the commission requires, and it's not necessary. This project needs to end as it's planned right now. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your comments. Let's have the next speaker, please. Hi, my name is Will Benjamin. I'm in District 2. Um, and I, like many people, am not in the Marina District. And I don't have a backyard. So what that means in a city is that, as the first speaker noted, I search for peaceful, tranquil places. And that's sometimes really, really hard. Particularly at night, libraries are closed. Um, I don't want to go spend a whole lot of money at bars or restaurants. Uh, if a park may be an option, but maybe it's not the safest spot. And Marina Green is a spot for that. Marina Green, you can go, you've had a tough day, and you can enjoy the bay. You can really have, have a really close connection to it to really access it. And that's so special for San Francisco. Um, yes, we have, we're going to have increased density. We're going to have more people. And as we have more people, we're going to need those spaces. It makes it feel like a like a place you want to live and not just um, just more and more people where you just feel just squished by everything. Um, so that, you know, you'll hear from lots of other people who have lots of, lots of other comments in opposition, but one occurred to me that kind of scares me, and, and this is the plea that I'll make, is please don't 
do this, because if so, that happens, there's going to be such a big media hit about how San Francisco took and basically sold its prime piece of real estate because it did not want to um, have environmental correction. It didn't want to do the proper environmental thing. You know, I, I've got friends across the country, and they would come to me and say, why did San Francisco do that? I thought you guys cared about environmentalism. You guys don't actually care at all. That would be awful. So again, please. Thank you for sharing your comments. Let's have the next speaker, please. Honorable Supervisors, my name is Josh Sale. I'm president of the South End Rowing Club. As you may know, the club is located at Aquatic Park. We have 2,200 members and just celebrated our 150th anniversary. The club has four sports, open water swimming, bay rowing, handball, and running. Every day, uh, you might think that being at Aquatic Park, that, but that that is where we practice our two water-based sports, but that's really not the case. Every day, we have swimmers and rowers leaving Aquatic Park for points north, east, and west. Of those three points of the compass, heading west is by far the most uh, pop popular for one important reason. It's safer because there's less boat traffic. When we swim east and, um, and row west, we're headed into the most commercialized and industrialized portions of the shoreline. Whereas when we head west, we have to be cautious at Gas House Cove and Yacht Harbor, but otherwise we're in a pretty safe place, which brings us to our concerns about the proposal at hand. Commercializing this stretch of the shoreline with a new marina and attendant increases in boat traffic, degradation of water quality, and unknowable changes to hydrology is a great concern to us. We urge you to support the proposed ordinance, protect the, com the uh, community's historic access. Thank you for your time. Thank you for sharing your comments. Let's have the next speaker, please. Kimball Livingston, District 1, in support of your blunt instrument. Because I am opposed to the Reckon Park plan for all the reasons you've heard. My particular thing, I'm a longtime devotee of youth sail training. We conduct that in what we laughingly call the Cove, that narrow inlet between the Wave Organ and Fort Mason that gives us just enough protection from wind and current that we can put beginners and intermediates and little kids in little boats out there. If you fill that with more boats and more slips, I love yachts. I'm a yachtsman, but I care about my kids. I don't want to lose them. I don't know where else to send them. My poster kids are a couple of black kids who started at Treasure Island. Treasure Island can't accommodate them right now. I wouldn't know where to send them. Thank you for sharing your comments. Let's have the next speaker, please. Thank you for allowing me to speak. My name is Mark Isaacs, and I live in District 2. I'm supportive of the cleanup of Gas House Cove, but I believe PG&E needs to do far more, more remediation than the proposed 15%. I am, however, very against the proposed new boat marina. I will speak from a more personal space right now. Approximately 11 years ago, my husband went in for his annual physical and received a terminal diagnosis. When his hospice nurses uh, would show up, it allowed me a couple hours to go down to the Marina Green. I'd drive to the Marina Green and sit there and rejuvenate and re-energize. The beauty of the wide open space, the openness of the bay, the Golden Gate, Alcatraz, and all of the nature, it truly became my sanctuary. So peaceful, so tranquil, even spiritual. I now use it every day. I believe that it is unconscionable that the mayor, Reckon Park, and the Board of Supervisors could even consider blocking that view 
from the citizens of San Francisco and the citizens of the world. This new harbor is not needed as there is a surplus for boat slips in the Bay Area. The new marina only benefits approximately 175 wealthy boat owners, yet at the expense of all San Franciscans and all of the people, the millions of visitors every year that come to San Francisco for those exact views. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mark Isaacs, for sharing your comments. Can we have the next speaker, please? Hi, good afternoon. My name is Pam Habel. Could you pull that mic right, right to your face, please? Sure. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, my name is Pam Habel, and I've lived in the city of San Francisco for quite a few decades. <clears throat> I, do, I am a resident of the marina. However, I assure you also, I do not have a view of the water or of these, this, this West Harbor. Um, <clears throat> I am somewhat in favor of the remediation. However, I do find it troubling that even the budget person who was up here, I thought gave a fantastic presentation. I'm like really appreciative for the budget folks that, that did that work. But I find it a little troubling that I think we all don't understand what that agreement was that was signed during COVID that was negotiated over 20 years. Uh, I, I believe that wasn't really open to the public. And if the Board of Supervisors voted on it, I think we're still kind of confused as to what is actually in that agreement and how specific things need to be in the West Harbor and in the harbor across from Safeway, whatever you want to call that area. Um, I think also, um, um, sorry, I lost my train of thought. Um, sorry. Um, Sorry, everybody. Um, I guess just mostly overall, oh, that's what I wanted to say, is that the view, I, I agree with the last speaker, this is not only a San Francisco thing, it's not a marina thing, this is like a state of California thing. So the view, unobstructed view, I go running there almost every day. And to, to lose that to a few, you know, 300 boats, that's ridiculous. I, I just don't understand how the city of San Francisco could allow that. So I really, I appreciate so much that this land use committee is actually hearing us, so thank you very much. And I do think, I hope people understand on the Board of Soups and the Land Use and all of the other committees, we are in this to win it. Thank, thank you, you for sharing your comments. Can we have the next speaker, please? Hello, Supervisors. My name is Bill Clark, and I have been spending time in Marina Green Park regularly since 2019 from the mission. I find myself mesmerized by the experience of nature from the green and walkway by the seawall. While I love Dolores Park, Marina Green Park is on a whole other level with a panorama and immersion in nature that defines for me what is unique about San Francisco. Sitting on one of the benches by the ocean, by the open water or having lunch in your car or a walk along the Bay Trail taking in all that nature provides and mankind too with sailing regattas and the awe-inspiring Golden Gate Bridge is the place to recalibrate, clear your head, and let nature overwhelm your urban self. And while I am there, I notice others sharing the same experience with me. From all walks of life and economic backgrounds from all over the Bay Area and from all over the world. The question becomes, are we willing to sacrifice the primary equity feature of Marina Green Park where everyone is welcome and has agency? Why would we take away that equity that multitudes enjoy and degrade the experience of nature with more marina? seen an exclusive use of the entire waterfront to a handful of boat owners. The fact is, it doesn't make sense. 
and the thought of building a marina there a misguided myopic vision for preserving our prized northern coastline. I feel the city has failed those who hold the Marina Green Park dear. The city entered into a settlement agreement with PG&E without accounting for the loss of revenue that Reckon Park would face when it came time to phase out East Harbor occupancy. For the last four years, deficits have been growing as slips have become vacant in preparation for PG&E's remediation. Half the harbor is empty now, resulting in a revenue shortfall. Instead of the shortfall expensed as a cost to the marina project, RPD is using a general fund deficit allotments as a a primary justification for building a new harbor to reach physical sustainability. Since the city let uh, PG&E off the hook for the above precursor expense, the city should cover the deficits and RPD should recalibrate their financials to reflect the loss of East Harbor revenue as a cost of the project. Thank you, Bill Clark, for sharing your comments to the committee. Can we hear from the next speaker, please? Hello, I have an image to share. Could you kindly pause the clock so I that I may share I begun the clock. This? You can lay it down on the projector and SFGovTV if you can please bring the projector. Sorry? Lay your, lay your projection down, please. It's upside down. There you are. I'm going to start your time. Hi, um, supervisors. Thank you for allowing me to speak. My name is Fran Hegler. I live in District 8, and I am a daily open water swimmer and rower. The images I'm showing you are trying to give um, a picture of what it actually is to have recreation on the water. What you see here in these images, this one in particular, are GPS, thank you, are GPS lines of people who swim and row along the San Francisco waterfront. Many of you don't see this. I see it every day. I'm there every day. And um, what's interesting is if you look at the number of slips that are proposed right here relative to where it is now, it shows the increase of boat traffic. Boat traffic is anathema to open water swimmers and to open water rowers. They're incompatible. So what you have here is Reckon Park proposing improvements to a marina district that compromise the very recreation that is their mission. Um, I'm quite concerned about it. I'm giving voice to my fellow club members um, who swim with me every day, but not many people, not everybody uses GPS. So this is actually a very small sampling of the kind of data that's out there. So I implore you to pass this ordinance that limits the amount of boat um, additions to this marina and to have the city invest in this recreation that so many of us who are just regular people um, enjoy almost uniquely in San Francisco. Thank you very much. Thank you for sharing your comments. Let's have the next speaker, please. Hello, my name is Susan Bohegian, and I'm a second-generation San Franciscan, and I live in District 7. I recently retired from the San Francisco Unified School District, where I worked as a paraeducator for, with special ed students for 29 years. We would often take our students on field trips to the, the Marina Green. The openness and the ability to look over at the water created a calmness and peacefulness in the students. Many of them had never seen the water or been to the marina green before. It was a wonderful opportunity for them. Part of the special education population was autistic on different levels of the scale. The freedom of the open space was essential to their experience. Many of this, these students came out of their shell and the happiness of being in a large open space brought huge smiles onto their faces. I'm still in contact with the special ed department of my former school, and they are still taking these field trips as part of their learning experience. Keeping this area open is essential. 
I would also like to add, as a child, my family would often visit the Marina Green, and I fondly remember the special times. My father, who was uh, not a patient person, painstakingly taught me how to fly a kite there. In closing, uh, well, not in closing, sorry. Um, <laughs> the Marina Green is an essential part of San Francisco. Among many other things, you can meditate, lay on the grass, enjoy, excuse me, enjoy nature, swim, sail, and listen to the beautiful sounds of bird chirp, birds chirping. I look at the Marina Green as San Francisco's front lawn for all to enjoy, Natives, native San Franciscans, San Franciscans, tourists, whoever. I strongly, strongly support the passage of Ordinance 231191. Thank you for sharing your comments to the committee. Let's have the next speaker, please. Hello, my name is Christine Kaplan. I come to you from a very unique place. I have operated the fuel dock at Gashouse Cove Marina for 50 years. Um, subsequent to that, I took my very first steps on the boulevard, which, you know, is a lifetime ago. In any case, uh, I'm troubled by the proposal with the Recreation and Park Department saying that if they have to adjust the way it's currently drawn, we're going to lose a fuel dock. Losing a fuel dock is not an, op an option. I could fill every one of these seats here tomorrow with Coast Guard, police, fire, sheriffs, bar pilots, all of the various agencies that keep our city safe, highway patrol, things that you wouldn't even consider, all the bridge district, Caltrans. It is not an option to not have a fuel dock and to move it from a very safe location tucked into a tiny corner where we can contain any kind of environmental disaster or if, it, God forbid, a boat explode and not exposing it to a great number of human beings or other boats is vitally important. Thank you for taking the time to listen to me. Thank you for sharing your comments. Let's have the next speaker, please. Good afternoon, Supervisors. My name is Joe Bravo. I am a resident and member of your district, Supervisor Milgar. Thank you for the job you've been doing for us. And I'm also a boat owner and tenant in East Harbor. I have been a boat rental owner since the 70s. And I remember being around here as long when the, uh, being around when the actual East Harbor was being constructed when I was about eight years old. I come to you to tell you not about, talk to you not about the open space and the recreational uh, activities or even the fuel dock. I'm here to tell you that this is not a question of trading open space and view and recreational activities for fiscal responsibility. I heard the report that was put together this afternoon about the numbers involved in this, and I'm going to tell you, they're not complete. I have been studying this myself for months now. The dredging operation that we are being charged with is a dredging operation that no one has studied as to whether or not it actually needs to be done. If you look at the dog leg that the, uh, at the jetty near the wave organ, it's clear to me and others who have studied it that the, the sand is piling up and shoaling because the waves are bringing it in from the dog leg that was put there a number of years ago. The shoaling, the sand piling, was not there 
I know because when I, and years ago, because in the 70s and in the 70s and the 60s when I was down there, there was no Sholi. So I urge you to please look again at these numbers and look at the costs involved and what's involved before you make a determination that you need to pay for all that dredging out there that's running the budget up, that's making you think you have to run a deficit as stated by the legislative analyst. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your comments. Let's have the next speaker, please. Um, hi, I'm Alex Wood, um, and I rent a crappy one-bedroom apartment near Twin Peaks uh, in District 8. And even though I'm a solid 25 to 30 minutes away from Marina Green, I go there almost every day. It started a few years ago when I had surgery on both my knees and fractured my hip in two places. Worst time of my life. <laughs> um, didn't walk for about six months, and during that time, I got a puppy. Um, and we basically learned to walk together on the Marina Green, so it's a pretty sentimental place to me. It's a great place to rehab an injury because parking is ample, free, and you could park really close um, in case you were having like a painful day that day. Um, it's flat, tons of benches to take a rest on um, and really enjoy the peaceful atmosphere. So from a disability perspective, this location and its accessibility are prime. Um, I still deal with chronic pain from these injuries, so I still try to go there to walk on the flat topography, um, unlike my neighborhood, which is pretty hilly. Um, I'm worried that the building of a new harbor would take away public parking, reserving it for slip holders. That would mean that this area would now only be accessible for marina residents who can walk there and therefore afford the expensive real estate, or for boat owners um, who can afford a boat in a boat slip in the marina. I'm neither of these type of people, and I think I represent a lot of people in the city. Um, and so I really do think that this would affect people who live in other neighborhoods more than it would people in the marina, which is what people are saying it would. Um, additionally, I'm a huge base swimmer. Um, I don't have a backyard space where I live, um, so this is my pool. Um, and the con construction of a new marina would make it a lot more dangerous and unwelcoming to swimmers. There's only so many pockets of safe waters in the bay, and this is one of them. Um, so in conclusion, let's not punish working class San Francisco citizens for PG&E's mistakes. Let's keep Gas House a harbor and keep the waterfront open. Thanks. Thank you for sharing your comments. Next speaker, please. Good afternoon, Supervisors. Thank you for this opportunity to speak in support of Ordinance 231191. My name is Bridget Boylan. I'm a South End Rowing Club member, an SF renter, and a District 3 um, occupant, and a voter. Um, I was going to talk about the Marina Green as a place that I can just go out and breathe and not be surrounded by buildings, and but a lot of people have talked to that already. So I'll just say that one of the other things there is no one's selling us anything or surveilling our behavior to see if we can be there. I truly not, cannot think of another central place in the city with this variety of activity and pure breathing room. I'll end here with a quote, quote from an August 26, 2022 SF Examiner article. Speaking about the importance of our mission, Phil Ginsburg said, it is our responsibility to provide soothing, inspirational, cohesive infrastructure for San Francisco. This exists at Marina Green, and the RPD Marina Grab with fences and yachts will destroy it. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your comments. Let's have the next speaker, please. Hello, supervisors. Uh, my name is Judy Irving. I've been swimming in the bay half my life since the mid-80s, and 
I often swim along that area that is proposed for uh, a new marina. So I, I have also boated there, I've kayaked there. It's a very safe area. And we're not supposed to talk about views, but my view as a swimmer looking back toward Marina Green as I'm floating by on a nice flood tide is fantastic. And it's open. I also am a filmmaker. I made a film about the wild parrots, but I also made a film called Pelican Dreams about, it's a valentine to pelicans. And I did a lot of shooting down there at the Marina Green because as anyone who goes there knows, flocks of pelicans fly by there and you can film a nice long pan. They're often low. If there were a marina there, it would be ruined. So as a filmmaker, as a swimmer, as a boater, I urge you to nix the Marina Harbor and, and approve this ordinance. Thank you so much. Thank you, Judy Irving. Can we have the next speaker, please? Um, my name is Mike Berline. I'm from District 8, and please support the resolution. The project schematic does not enjoy community support. The Board of Supervisors approved the marina project with the safety valve build and maintain community consensus. It doesn't pass that test. Uh, there are some site survey problems. Review of the dimensions of the project is difficult because park and rec design team are prohibited from issuing industry standard AutoCAD drawings. The project jetty is outside the state lands grant deeded to the city. State Lands Commission has spent weeks working on exculpatory documentation, so far to no avail. There are discrepancies between the assessor recorder map of port jurisdiction and the project area. So far, exculpatory documentation is not forthcoming. Site survey documents need to be transparent and coordinated and consistent. Thank you for protecting this precious piece of water. Thank you for sharing your comments. Could we have the next speaker, please? Uh, hello, uh, committee members. Once again, my name is Tom Peer. I am the vice chair of the California Commission of the Division of Boating and Waterways. And I am not here on behalf of the commission, and I'm not here to speak for or against this project, but I am here to inform the committee and generally the Board of Supervisors of my efforts at the Division of Boating and Waterways to get a proper presentation on this matter. During our last two quarterly meetings, I have come to the Division and suggested that we have a presentation to be heard on this matter. It is the mandate of the Division of Boating and Waterways to fund projects. As this committee is well aware, the, what was then the Department of Boating and Waterways uh, provided tw uh, $24 million in 
low interest loans. So I would recommend very strongly that this committee and the Board of Supervisors generally engage the division in terms of their plans for this project. I have, um, again, I am not here to take a position one way or another, but I think, I mean, um, I'm not gonna say that I approve or disapprove of this legislation, but what I am gonna say is that there are other funding avenues, both at the federal and state level, that may be taking place. And I think it's very important that there's engagement between the various entities. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your comments. Could we have the next speaker, please? Good afternoon. My name is Randy Borcherding. I speak in support of the ordinance 231191 regarding the Marina Green uh, waterfront open space. The ordinance protects the use of that very special place for everyone in San Francisco. San Franciscos have been using the Marina Green as their backyard for generations. It offers a place to relax and enjoy the beauty of San Francisco. It's a place for San Franciscans to unwind the pre and unwind from the pressures of daily life. People come from all over the city to relax, fish, swim, kayak off the Marina Green seawall. I know senior citizens who come from across San Francisco to the Marina Green to watch the threatened brown pelicans feed in the area immediately in front of the Marina Green or to see the harbor seals play there. They sit in their cars in the parking area or, uh, parking area or sit on benches along the seawall. Those benches have plaques on them dedicated to San Franciscans who've enjoyed the beauty of the open water and the wildlife. Reckon Park's reckless proposed development of the area is wrongheaded and would destroy a San Francisco public treasure. The parking places now used by the public would be displaced by the privileged few who would use it for their reserved yacht parking. The Reckon Park proposed development essentially converts an open space to a private one inconsistent with the city's policy to protect open and historical spaces in the century-old Marina Green area. And most sadly of all, the PG&E settlement proceeds would not be used to clean up all of the pollution in the Gas House Cove which has been the purpose of the settlement from PG&E, I urge you to approve the ordinance. To do otherwise would be a great disservice to the people of San Francisco. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your comments. Could we have the next speaker, please? Thank you for your work. Um, my name is Christopher Parsons. I'm a business owner in District 3 of San Francisco. I'm a 24-year resident of Russian Hill. Um, I've used the Marina Green multiple times per week for all 24 of those years. Um, one of the benefits of going 25th is that most of the people have already made the points you came up here to make, so I'm going to try and edit them in real time and add something new to the discussion. Um, I run along the, the water three days a week, and I'm lucky enough to be physically able to do so and can continue going on to Chrissy Field, into Baker Beach, and other kind of open spaces. However, that won't always be true for me, and it's not true for many residents of San Francisco. Um, I see, um, when I'm there with my wife, Denise, or by myself, I see people of all ages and abilities using the water. I see um, people coming from senior housing around and being pushed, wheeled, walked, um, escorted along the water with views of the water that is not, would not be available to them in the other open spaces. Um, I see workers from around the city 
I see moving companies, pizza delivery, movers, homeless outreach people, parking on breaks, eating sandwiches, drinking their tea, taking a much needed break from their work around the city. Um, I see older people driving up and sharing lunches with each other, some of them couples who've been doing it for a long, long period of time. And bird watching is very special in this neighborhood for some of you in the area that know that. Um, the tourists, again and again, using this area. These are the things I see every day um, that I'm down there at the marina. So I deeply support this ordinance. I can't understand why 500 to 700 boats are more important to the city um, than the hundreds, tens of thousands. I'm not sure how many people use it every, every year, but there's lots of us. And if it's so complicated and expensive to operate harbors in the city, perhaps we should consider rewilding or going another direction um, and turning the city back into the natural beauty that it is. Thank you. Thank you much for addressing this committee. Next speaker, please. Good afternoon. My name is Nicole Prieto, and I'm a third generation San Franciscan, my children being fourth generation. I bring this up because uh, I and the rest of my family, coincidentally, were all raised in District 7. When I was a small child, uh, my grandparents or parents would take me and my brothers down to the Marina Green to enjoy open space, to be able to look at the water along the bay front. It was something unusual and special. What was unique to me is to play with other children in the Marina Green, on the Marina Green, to meet other kids from other districts and realize how diverse our city is. Uh, a few of those friendships have lasted many, many, many years. So. I, um, of course, did the same with my own sons, and nothing has changed. There's true diversity of enjoyment of all San Franciscans. Um, I um, just want to say that I consider the Marina Green, I think uh, someone said earlier, our San Francisco's front lawn, one to enjoy for all residents, tourists, national tourists, international tourists. If you spend any time down there, you realize continued the diversity of people who enjoy the Marina Green. Um, building a yacht harbor for uh, an elite few is a travesty and will certainly create an elitist uh, point of view in a city that prides itself in diversity, both economically as well as culturally. So, thank you. I support this ordinance completely. Thank you. And thank you much. Next speaker, please. Hi. Thank you very much for having us today. My name's Erin Roach. I'm a resident of the marina and have been one of the organizers of Keep the Waterfront Open. And kind of like Chrissy Kaplan said earlier today, I could fill the room over and over and over with people that oppose this project. But I have a couple things that are gonna be different that you haven't seen yet. Um, one is we have invited some of the supervisors to come and look and walk the space with us. I, I would hope that you do that if you haven't already. Um, I've never used this thing before, so I'm not sure if you can. Okay, it's upside down. Um, this is a picture from the Marina Harbor, and if you can't see it, Supervisor Melbourne, can you look? This is. Okay, this is pretty important. At least 10% of the slips right now look like that. It's boats that are decrepit 
and I don't know if it's people just sitting there letting them rot so that they can get a new slip at the new harbor, but it's at least 10% of the boats down in the east and west harbors. I also know that vacancy is about 12%. So between the docks that have fallen in disrepair, which look like this, uh, they're not being used at all, so of course there's no revenue. Um, and the vacancies that are there, I think they could just do a whole lot better managing. And I don't think that we've at all looked into the mismanagement at the harbor. Secondly, I want to give you this. I don't know if you all are aware, but the remediation in the east part of the marina is very serious. All of these dots represent homes that have voluntarily subjected to soil sampling. The um, circle that you see was an estimation at what a thousand feet from Gashouse Cove looks like. Those were the people that were actually notified and input was solicited from RPD about this process. So mainly I just want to say nobody asked us. Uh, the city was given permission to, to the head of Reckon Park to negotiate a deal with a private corporation that benefits the private corporation, not the citizens of San Francisco. It's very serious. Well, the, and we're, we take the remediation seriously. Thank you for sharing your comments. I have so much more to say, but I'll talk to you separately. Thank you for listening. Let's have the next speaker, please. Um, I'm very short. I have to get this to go. We can hear down. you. Um, my name is Carol Holcomb, and I've lived in the marina over 40 years now. And uh, I do... Um, support the, uh, the, this uh, uh, new ordinance. Um, I have been taking my constitutional walk uh, to, the, uh, uh, to the Marino Seawall for 30 years, and I, extremely, I was extremely distressed when I heard last August that uh, the city was planning to berth some 200 larger-sized boats in front of the seawall. The walk along the seawall has uh, been an integral part of my life. And the walk uh, along the sea well, which is open to the um, open waterfront, is about a quarter of a mile. And I love the sound of the seas, the small, small waves just hitting against the rocks and, and sometimes against the seawall itself. Uh, the sound isn't like the loud crashing waves of Ocean Beach, I find, and I find this very relaxing, as opposed to Ocean Beach. But, uh, and also, I like to get to the seawall at desk because, one, it's a lot less crowded, <laughs> and, uh, and it's just when the sea turns deep blue, which is beautiful. And uh, so this is, this is my favorite spot in San Francisco, and I don't think there's anything else like it. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your comments. Could we have the next speaker, please? Hello, my name is Gabriella Strand, and I'm a native San Franciscan. So I've been going. I'm pause your time. Could you pull that mic right up to your? There you are. Is that better? We can hear you so much okay. better. Okay, so I'll repeat. So my name is Gabriella Strand, and I'm a native San Franciscan, and I've been going to the Marina Green since I was a kid growing up in the sunset. So my parents took me there first, and then I would go with my friends in high school from Abraham Lincoln, and now I go on my own and I walk my dog. And the whole time I've been going there, one of the things I've always been impressed with is the diversity of people who go. So this is not just a marina issue. 
There are people there from all over the city that are there. And I, I want to echo what the gentleman said about people taking their breaks there. So I see people there of all different hues, if you will, from all over the place. Um, and especially in the marina, we've got a lot of people who come early for work, and they need some place to go before their shifts start. And this is where they hang out. We also see people there playing soccer, and not just organized soccer, but we have people that are playing you know, full-on soccer games all the time. And this is where I learned to fly kite. A lot of other people fly kites there, too. Um, we see our swimmers there. This is a very, very active place with a very active, um, active use. And then to take this away and really take this, uh, it's a land grab and a water grab that's happening there. So right now the slips, those discrepant slips are 25 feet, and the new ones are going to be 40-foot slips for even bigger boats, so for truly wealthy boat owners. Right now some of those discrepant ones that you're looking at, those are small little boats, and we talk about small boat owners in the east or the west end. Um, the new ones are truly wealthy boat owners that are coming in. So this grab that's taking place is something that we really should not be putting up with in San Francisco. And I want to add one thing about parking. Paid parking in parks speaker should not be concluded. allowed. Parks are Thank a public good. Thank you for sharing good. your comments with the committee. We need to move on to the next speaker. Next speaker, please. Hello, um, my name is Sharon Wong. I was born and raised in this beautiful city by the bay. I commend Supervisors Peskin, Safai, and Chan for sponsoring this ordinance to protect the marina green waterfront from this disastrous plan. Um, I do not have a fabulous uh, house with a fabulous view on Marina Boulevard. I grew up in a small apartment above Chinatown with no views like most working class families. My dad would get off work and take me down to Marina Green to fish or fly kites or just to relax and enjoy that vast expanse of sky and water, up close and personal, close enough to feel the salt spray. Um, like many of us who um, use, uh, like many of us, Marina Green was my favorite playground, my dreamland, my inspiration, and it still is today. Um, as a city kid, Marina Green was my first introduction to wide open spaces and a place to commune with nature. Isn't that one of the main goals of Rec and Park, to bring the wonder and love of nature to the average citizen? But this plan to move boat slips over for a privileged few wealthier boat owners would close off this treasure that belongs to all of us. Um, you certainly have my vote to prevent the expansion of uh, the Gas House Cove Marina. Thank you for listening to your community. Thank you for sharing your comments. Could we have the next speaker, please? Hi, my name is Lawrence Hyman. I've been living on Russian Hill for more than a quarter century. From that quarter century, I have taken guests from Europe and to Amer from Amer around America to typically to Marina Green, where we sit on one of those benches and I show them, it's one of the very few spots in the North Waterfront where you can sit right by the water and have this unobstructed view from the Golden Gate Bridge out to the East Bay. Uh, now the city wants to propose to put a parking lot for boats in front of that spot. So instead of having an unobstructed view, 
when we'll be trying to look at Mount Tam or the bridge through the moving masts of sailboats. I am lucky enough that I'm one of the people who could buy one of those nice boats and rent a slip along the marina. But I wouldn't expect the city to build a parking lot for my boat to put it there. So I propose that you leave the space unobstructed so that people can enjoy that view from the marina green and those benches. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your comments. Next speaker, please. Supervisors, my name is Diane Walton. I'm a resident of District 3 and a member of the Dolphin Club. I stand up in support of the ordinance. It's a, it's a measure of hope for me. It's a sign of leaders listening. And I'm so appreciative of the time and effort that you're taking to see what this is all about. So I will offer here what I offered at the Rec and Park Commission on behalf of the Dolphin Club. What are we going to do next? After the ordinance passes, we'd be glad to help in any way we can. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your comments. Could we have the next speaker, please? Good afternoon. Uh, Evelyn Graham with Keep the Waterfront Open. Um, our organization has been building support in the public since March of 2023. 650 supporters have sent you over 7,000 letters, and 1,200 supporters are signed into our opt-in mailing list. I had lots to say, but what I would, having sit here and listened to the Record Park presentation, it was basically the fourth time I heard it. Hasn't changed much. A uh, little bit of this, that, and the other thing. Then the budget report came out and basically gave them a way out, a way to, to become financially stable without the project. And yet, the deaf ears of Reckon Park prevailed in that department. Having been a former real estate broker, I can tell you that when your asset is not covering, your, when the generation of the revenue is not covering the asset operating, you spiff it up first, you clean it up, you maximize your value, and then you think about expanding. Reckon Park is doing the opposite. They're letting their deferred maintenance go to whatever, and they're gonna build a brand new marina. Just how do we know we're gonna manage it? I think it's time that they got someone with more experience and expertise to manage the harbor financially. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your comments. Let's have the next speaker, please. I am here to ask you to do a right thing and please support the ordinance of Safai Peskin, please. And then don't let Brecken Park take away our public access and universal use and give it to a bunch of yacht harbor rich people. People like me, we walk at Marina Green Waterfront daily and we are so, it's so many of us, some with uh, you know, health problem, some with mental issue, and we all sit on a bench looking at the water and meditate. And the proximity of water to the bench is so close that it's just like a meditation and healing. 
to me, it's the best therapist. So please, please don't give it to the Rick and Park. Leave it for the public. And thank you. Thank you for sharing your comments. Next speaker, please. Uh, good afternoon. My name is Christina Orth. I'm a member of the board of directors of the Pacific Heights Residents Association, who last week uh, endorsed the passage of this ordinance, and we hope that it will be reported out today. I also want to say that Peter Richards, who is the creator of the wave organ, had to leave, um, unfortunately, due to the uh, length of the hearing today. But uh, I believe he has submitted a letter in support of the ordinance as well. Uh, Supervisor Peskin has that. And I really um, object to the way in which Reckon Park has uh, described some of the issues, especially financially. And I'm looking forward to reading the budget analyst report because I think even in that report, the little that I was able to understand from my seat, uh, Reckon Park has inflated many of the economic issues. And is this an enterprise zone? Is that what we want for San Francisco? I don't think so. And I really don't understand the extent to which the general fund has to be relieved of giving recreation to the citizens of San Francisco. I don't get it. I really don't get it. So I, that to me is, is like, oh, we don't want to do this for you. Let's have rich boat owners. And I won't say more other than the fact that, oh, my great-grandfather was the founding member of the Dolphin Club, and I loved what the Dolphin Club members had to say today. So thank you. Wait, the Dolphin Club was founded in 1877. It must be great, great, great. Yeah. <laughs> thank you for your comments. Can we get the next speaker, please? Um, hi, my name is Carol Drobek. I'm a 50-year resident of um, Russian Hill. I have I discovered the marine and green promenade during the pandemic and when I was trying to find a place to walk that I could walk because of an injury to my leg. And I, I was just overwhelmed by that place after being there for only a few times. I just can't even describe now the power and magic that that place provides to this city to the many people who go there. People have spoke to this issue, the healing, the spiritual upliftment. Um, these are things that are important to me and to so many. But I also speak for the old people who in the park and rec, um, you know, in their fabulous design are completely eliminated. They, they, they would not be able to walk out into the, onto their new seawall. They wouldn't be able to walk out to their viewing stations, there, was no, there would be no place for them to sit and experience this amazing, amazing place. I, it breaks my heart to think that anyone would even imagine putting a bunch of boats, and I don't dislike boats. I think the maritime quality of this city is fabulous. It's what makes it special. But this is a travesty, and I can't I, I just don't even know what to say. It really does break my heart. And when I first saw that, uh, when I first saw their flyer, I said, uh-oh, they're going to ruin it. Um, this was the park and rec flyer posted on a, 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 a pole. I said, they're going to ruin it. And I think they're trying, but, you know, I hope that this ordinance um, 
helps us and saves this amazing, amazing place. There's nothing like it. There is just nothing like it. So thank you. Thank you for your comments. Let's have the next speaker, please. My name is Charles Ortenberg. I live in the marina with uh, my wife. Uh, while I've only lived in the city relatively short time, my wife's a third generation San Franciscan, and we both support the ordinance. Uh, the, the, my fellow citizens have been far more articulate than I in de describing uh, the losses, the potential losses of, of the harbor. Um, I do appreciate, particularly um, as a manager for a big corporation for a long time, the need for break-even, so I uh, appreciate the challenge. But I do think uh, the, the notion of this, the city using solely an economic driver is why we have cities and city governments. Uh, so I hope uh, you'll take that under consideration. The other thing I have to say is I got inv involved with this uh, probably in the, in the summer. This is the third meeting that I've come to. Uh, it sure feels like the deal between uh, Park and Rec and, and uh, uh, PG&E was done a smoke-filled room. Set a lot of parameters somehow on the, uh, on the Park and Rec side that were not negotiable in any of the discussions. Uh, the discussions that I did go to, a lot of stuff uh, was not well publicized in my opinion and, and uh, continue not to be. The original proposal um, showed, you know, a view of the harbor that said, gee, you know, it's really not going to change that much. And it was from the south end of the Marina, Marina Boulevard. So it wasn't on the water. Um, the, the last thing I'll say is this is the third meeting I've come to where the, the woman who owns the, the Cove uh, here, uh, uh, Har Harbor gas place has come. To my knowledge, never once has anybody ever reached out to her to get her perspective. It's only been in this meeting, and having worked for corporations for a long time, you, that it's, it just seems really hard. Thank I'll you for stop. sharing your Thank comments. you very much. Could we have the next speaker, please? Hello, supervisors. My name is Hank Evans. I've been a marina resident for about 40 years, and uh, one of the big reasons we never moved out of the marina is because of the marina green. I would say that uh, it's very disappointing to see how for two years Rec and Park hid this plan from the public and then once they uh, broached the plan and got a lot of negative feedback they said oh well that ship has sailed. Uh, it's also apparent from the BLA presentation today that there's just been a lot of misinformation and false assumptions from RPD which I also find disturbing. Um, on the merits, the waterfront we're talking about and the access to it in the Marina Green is, I think, just exceptional. Uh, you can drive right up to it, and within 15 or 20 feet, you're right at the waterfront. It's amazing for especially the young, the old, and the disabled. And uh, I walk my dog there most every day and see all those kind of people enjoying the waterfront and the access. Um, I since this whole process started, I've had a grandson. He's four months now, and uh, in about four more months, I look forward to walking him along the waterfront there at the Marina Green. And uh, I also don't want him playing uh, swimming or paddleboarding in Gashouse Cove when there's just been minimal covering of the toxins and a sewer outfall in Gashouse Cove that continues to pollute that area. So, and 
thank you, and thank you for listening to all of us today for whom this issue is so important. Thank you for sharing your comments. Can we have the next speaker, please? Yeah, uh, good evening. Uh, my name is Lincoln Chris. Um, I'm a resident of San Francisco, not in the marina. I've been here for 50 years, and uh, my uncle was here in 1936. I've had a long experience with the city. Basically speaking, um, it's very simple to me. The Marina Green is a crown jewel of San Francisco. We've got the Golden Gate Bridge. We have the Presidio that put in all of the open spaces. We have the Marina Green. We have Golden Gate Park. There are other places that are the same. This is a crown jewel. It's very straightforward. And to think that money of a million dollars or $500,000 is going to alter the tenor of this crown jewel for generations to come and 100 years is a travesty. Joni Mitchell said in his song, we're going to pave over paradise and put in a parking lot. That's what this is going to be. It's going to be a boating parking lot. I have never been in a meeting, and I've been in the corporate world, where for the first time I think I've ever experienced not one person here, and this is a public meeting, has ever come in here and said, oh, let's put in a, let's put in a parking lot. What, 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 what is it that people are missing here? What is it that people are missing? Every single person here, and this is a public meeting where everybody can come to, has said, don't do it. Let me be very clear. Stop trying to destroy our open spaces Leave the marina green alone. Thank you for sharing your comments. Could we have the next speaker, please? I'll retrieve the, the documents in a moment. And SFGovTV, if we could go to the projector. Uh, Dan Clark, a change of pace. I have a small detail, a business item to uh, address as part of all of this, which is uh, the ordinance that's proposed is going to limit the expansion of West Harbor in, uh, to the east and limit it to 150 feet. That's very clear. We know uh, uh, how to measure 150 feet. We know which way east is, but there is a question uh, or there's a lack of clarity within the ordinance as to exactly where the beginning of the 150 feet begins. The, the diagram that I've, that I've given you there shows what I believe is the answer to that, <clears throat> is that it begins at the existing northward-oriented sheet pile breakwater and then extends out to roughly where the wave organ exists, um, uh, ends. Um, or is I'm sorry. So what I'm what I'm asking is, as you uh, move this ordinance forward, which I totally support, that you uh, clarify that one small detail, so that uh, people uh, are not confused today about it, or people in the future don't end up debating it. Um, I, I admit that I'm not the authority on where it should should begin and end but uh, I think it should be clarified and I think it would help. That said, I want to appreciate everybody that's here today that has spoken and I hope you, I really hope that you will pass this ordinance. Thank you for your time. Thank you for sharing your comments. Can we have the next speaker, please? Hi, thank you all for uh, having us here today. 
Um, my name is Rich Marini. I'm a native San Franciscan, and you've heard a lot of uh, personal stories, um, so I'm not going to cover that. But um, I find myself defending the city more and more these days, um, and I do so vigorously and with a lot of passion. Um, we used to be known as a city that knew how to do things and get things done. And there's a lot of smart people in this room, including the park and rec. So I just implore you to come up with a different solution to this so that we can prove to the world that we can get things done again. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your comments. Can we get the next speaker, please? Supervisors, parks and, parks and rec. Um, uh, thank you for taking all this time. Um, I just want to point out that uh, numerical informed density requirements for the state housing element, that's hard. Your task in front of you with that is, I, I, I would venture, near impossible. Uh, rejecting the billionaire boat harbor expansion, this is easy. This is easy stuff, right? Take it. Take it what you can. Um, uh, and I just, I, I end with, this aligns with San Francisco and our inclusive values. And I, I, I don't know, everybody has said all, everything that can be possibly be said, and I just urge you to take the easy route on one thing, because the rest of it's hard. Thank you for sharing your comments. Let's hear from the next speaker, please. I'm Laura. I'm also one of the organizers of this group. And um, first of all, you've heard from many, many districts here. I mean, talk about inclusivity. Lots of people all over the city love the Marina Green. And I want to know, when did this whole trend start to charge people for parks where the parks have to pay for themselves? I mean, what's that all about? Are we going to have entry fees now for every park in the city? I mean, it's crazy. And I, one of the things that stood out to me is the budget analyst did a lot of great work. I'm guessing there's even more options to consider that they haven't even thought of, you know? Um, I don't know where all the monies for Fleet Week go, but they should be going to the marina. There's probably lots of other events that could be held there, and that money could go to the marina. But again, why should a park have to pay for itself? Um, that's part of, you know, and $500,000, that's a little bit of a small bucket compared to San Francisco's budget. So why are we twisting ourselves in knots to be able to get $500,000 back from the general fund, okay? I don't get that. And I want to point out, I was one of the lucky few, that's a thousand people that got invited to provide input to RPD, and I was there for all of their meetings, and they took surveys from everybody in attendance about what did the people want to the community. That was their opportunity to get input. Hardly any input, but they got it. Five, there five, no, excuse me, 487 people said they wanted nature views. That was their top request. That was by far the biggest request of all of the input out of 500. That's 97% of the input said that. Did they ever report this to you guys? I bet not. <laughs> so um, lastly, I just want to point out that this is a small portion of the people who have been opposing this. We had over 3,000 people sign a petition as well, which we actually shared with the RPD group and they didn't care. So I think, again, this is something that um, there's a lot of community involvement, commitment to. We're happy to work with you all to come up with better options, but speaker I am sure concluded. there are other ways that it can be paid for. Thank you for sharing your comments with the committee. Let's hear from the next speaker, please. 
I'm Patricia Voy, Marina Calhalla, Neighbors and Merchants, and PADS. We have, some things have not been said. This expansion is going to hurt the economic vitality of our neighborhood and our merchants. And the reason why is if you put boats across this entity, we will not be able to see Fourth of July, Fleet Week, the triathlons, the big regattas, and above all, the families that come down for the regular regattas with the small 22, 24-year-old boats that come almost weekly uh, are not going to be able to see the boats racing. This is an economic issue. Where are, where are the people going to go for these, for these uh, issues? Number two is that Park and Rec did a big process for India Basin, but didn't do it for us. Uh, I take offense to this. The marina people are very, very, very wonderful people that love all, love diversity. And they keep getting a bum rap. And I firmly believe that this is an insult to our neighborhood, our greater neighborhood to our merchants. The other thing is because of Mr. Newsom and Mr. Lee, our workforce has been pu pushed out and they have to drive into town and the only place they can park and move the cars every two hours is at the Marina Green. And this is our prep cooks, our janitors, our, our cooks, our waiters, waitresses. Thank you speaker very much. Has concluded. Thank you for sharing your comments with the committee. Could we have the next speaker, please? And while that speaker is coming forward to lectern, is there anyone else who has public comment on agenda item number seven from whom we have not yet heard? If so, please line up. Um, good evening, Supervisors. I'm Hunter Cutting, and today I'm speaking on behalf of the Sierra Club. Um, and the Sierra Club very firmly endorses the proposed ordinance. Um, we do so because, as you've heard today, there is a slew of problems with the redevelopment that's been proposed by Park and Rec. This ordinance won't take care of all of them, but um, it will sort of initiate um, a new discussion so that we can get the kind of redevelopment that we need and deserve. Um, I would highlight in particular, though, that this marine expansion is going to dramatically reduce public access to the bay, and that's a key concern for the club. The area that's just north of Marina Green is the only large protected sailing area on the waterfront. Um, and just as a little personal anecdote, my son, who was a member of the Mission High School sailing team, trained and competed in that sailing area when he was a high school student. Because of that experience, he was able to win a scholarship to a public university with a top 10 sailing team. He went on to the College Nationals, and he now serves as the Youth Program Director at the Treasure Island Sailing Center. So those are the kind of experiences that we will lose when we lose public access to the Bay with this kind of expansion. It's not okay. We need to reboot, and we think this ordinance is a good start to re-beginning the conversation. Thank you for your attention here today. Thank you for sharing your comments. Do we have anyone further who has public comment on agenda item number seven? Madam Chair. Thank you, Mr. Clerk. Public comment on this item is now closed.
Um, so I believe you will make a motion, President well, Pesky. I'm sorry, Madam. Okay, I see. Uh, uh, go ahead, uh, Supervisor Preston. Thank you, uh, Chair Melgar. And I, I just wanted to um, want to thank everyone who came out for public comment, all the folks who have reached out to our office um, on this. Um, and I, it, it's really, it is rare, as some of the commenters know, to, just how it, it is rare to have an item where we literally did not hear a single member of the public coming in and, uh, and defending the current plan. And, and that really uh, speaks, speaks volumes. And, and I also want to really echo some of the comments that were made around while disproportionately we're hearing from folks who live near that, that the Marina Green is a is a important site for the entire city. Um, and uh, a lot of the speakers, or some of the speakers spoke to that as a, a crucial open space resource in the city. Um, I will not get into past experience. I will just say that I'm disappointed. Um, yet again, we had a long hearing on something in my district uh, where, that was where the community was really excluded and not listened to in the planning process for a major rec park uh, project. Um, and I think it is, it's a, you know, I, I, it's, it's an issue, it's a problem. And I, and I think there are better ways of doing this and acknowledging the community input along the way um, so that we don't end up, and you all don't end up in the community having to spend hours upon hours upon hours organizing, coming to meeting after meeting, coming to the Board of Supervisors. We have to spend all our time doing that when I think a greater level of community involvement along the way could have uh, avoided that, uh, that situation that we face. So um, all that being said, as I've informed uh, Supervisor Safai uh, previously and Supervisor Pe uh, Peskin, I would like to be added as a co-sponsor uh, to this legislation. Um, and I also would like to thank uh, my colleagues. This is, you know, we all have a lot on our plates in our own district, and it's not the normal situation where one of our colleagues has to recuse themselves and can't take the lead on a, because of that on a major thing in the district. So it adds uh, quite a bit of work and, and appreciate very much Supervisor Safai's uh, leadership on this and uh, President Peskin as well in not just coming and meeting with the community um, but also uh, talking with colleagues myself included of, of uh, really educating us um, on on the situation which uh, I've been following in some detail and have heard from a number of folks I know in the community so appreciate everyone uh, uh, speaking out um, and also updating our office but but really did want to acknowledge the work, and I know it's been a lot of work thank you. Uh, on this, Supervisor Safai and President Peskin. So thank you both, and proud to be a co-sponsor. Uh, President Peskin. Thank you, Chair Melgar. Uh, let me start by saying what I said uh, at the two community meetings that Supervisor Safai and I attended that, as Supervisor Safai said, uh, had uh, significantly more people than showed up today. Um, I started by apologizing on behalf of the city and county of San Francisco, of which I am one of 11 legislators, uh, for the fact that what we see today, what we've seen in thousands of emails, 
was fully rejected by the staff and commission of the Recreation and Parks Department. Uh, I think it is insulting to uh, the community. Um, and I want to share another experience that I had at both of those meetings, um, which was reflected by some of the public comment, uh, that this is, uh, yes, it is a piece of property that sits in a supervisorial district, um, but it, it's kind of like the Washington, D.C. of San Francisco. It is cherished by people from all over the city. And when we went to one of those meetings, at one of them I said, how many people here are from District 2, uh, which is where the meeting was, and about half the room raised their hands. And I said, how many are from District 1, and 10 people raised their hands, and District you know, 4, and 10 people raised their hands, and the district that I am from on the other side of Van Ness Avenue, District 3, a bunch of people raised their hands, is people from all over the city. Um, this, is, this is a clearly an issue of citywide import. This is not a pocket neighborhood park that the surrounding neighbors care about. This is really part of the ethos of San Francisco. Uh, and then let me say that I concur absolutely, which is, first of all, the whole concept of government is to provide services with taxpayer dollars. Uh, the Recreation and Parks Department uh, is by design a money loser. It's there to spend your tax dollars providing recreation and parks opportunities for the public. Now having said that, I agree that a marina facility should pay as much of its own way as possible and we know that the dredging uh, costs about $592,000 more per year than the fees that are currently generated. Now that doesn't mean that you bomb the village to save it. Um, and that's exactly what the mentality here has been. Um, there are, I appreciate the budget and legislative analyst report that clearly shows there are other ways of recouping those dollars, whether it is in increased slip fees, uh, which by the way are borne by the largest boats, which are owned by the most wealthy people, uh, and that there is elasticity of demand because there is a huge waiting list. Um, and likely uh, people would still be on that waiting list and would pay more money for their existing slips. But even if you didn't go down that route, or if you did not go down the route that the budget and legislative analyst has suggested about charging for parking, which I have concerns about because, again, we want to encourage access to the water and not discourage it, albeit the feds at Fort Mason have now started charging for parking there, so the model is there. But there are other ways to deal with this. We're looking at a 130 minimum dollar settlement from Pacific Gas and Electric, up to $190 million. The costs of the actual remediation are substantially less. The vast amount of the capital is going into building a new breakwater and a new marina. Well, what if we just did the smaller amount of remediation at Gashouse Cove and used the rest of the money as a sinking fund to create interest that you could use for the dredging. There are, if we wanted to be creative, there are many ways that we could solve this. That's not the way Reckon Park approached it. They had an idea, the idea was fully cooked. They told the public, you know, thank you very much for your input. Uh, it was frankly insulting, which is why on behalf of the city and county of San Francisco, I apologize. Uh, I want to thank Supervisor Safai, who stepped into the breach when Supervisor Stephanie um, was, was required to recuse herself from this and for um, his leadership. Uh, I agree with the gentleman who said that a lot of what we deal with 
is extremely complicated and numerical caps on density limits are you know, very, very difficult to figure out. Uh, this is pretty darn easy. Um, and, and I think that if Reckon Park wants to open their minds and open their ears, there are many ways that we can figure this out that is in the financial best interest of Reckon Park uh, and in the interest of preserving a spot, which by the way, and this is no disrespect to keep the waterfront open, um, if you could have outreach to folks in the Mission and the Excelsior and other communities, when I go and take my walks there on a Saturday, it is every language, it is every corner of the city, Spanish is spoken, people are having their lunches and by the backs of their cars on those benches. I mean, it is really a welcoming area that is truly San Francisco. Uh, this is not one of those things where a handful of you know, homeowners across the street on the Marina Green are protecting their views. Far from it. Far from it. Um, so uh, I know that Supervisor Safai has a technical amendment that he wishes to make, but I, I very much would like to move this to the full board with a positive recommendation um, and see where that uh, motion goes. Uh, Madam Chair. Uh, Supervisor Safai. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Uh, Supervisor Peskin, um, it's been great partnering with you on this. Uh, this. This has been a lot of work, but I have to say I want to thank all of you that have been involved in this process. Um, I'm not a longtime member of a swimming club. I don't know how to sail or row, um, but I do have the history of bringing my kids down there when they learned how to play soccer. I've been in this city for almost half my life, and Sometimes you take some of these assets in our city for granted. And I have to say that the more I've dug in, the more I've learned from all of you, the more I've listened to all of you, um, and I don't mean just all of you in this room, but all of you that have been involved in this process, even go, going down with Aaron um, on the holiday season and seeing all of the families that were there for all of the festivities that were happening at night, I mean, people you have used the word magical, I think a lot, uh, Supervisor Peskin, in this process about describing this space. And I truly believe it is. It is really one of the magical spaces in San Francisco. And one of the commenters said, you know, we're good, at, in, or we always have had a tradition in our city of knowing how to get things done. I truly don't believe we put our best foot forward. There is $190 million on the table. There are so many different organizations that are dedicated in the Bay Area, in San Francisco, to preserving open space and preserving, preserving marina uses. We have not even begun to scratch the surface on how we can come together as a city and a community to put together a phenomenal plan for this area. And I know when we do, we are going to be much better for it. To, to, to listen to some of the, and, and this is some of the listening that I've done, to listen to some of the Yacht Har uh, Harbor folks talk about how this is, and one of, the, one of the individuals talked from the Sierra Club about his own family member. This is the only space in the entire area of San Francisco that you can train to learn how to sail. When you go into the St. Francis Yacht Club and you look on the wall, one of the people there that trained in that area has gone on to be an Olympic medalist, that has gone on to be Olympic level. 
if not for that space, they would never have had that opportunity. There's multiple schools in the area, multiple children, multiple swimmers, rowers, and others that take advantage of the space. Why would we want to reconfigure it and minimize that? We have the ability, we have the money, we have the know-how. We can put together a much better uh, plan. So I'm going to make a small uh, technical amendment today that's non-substantive from my understanding from the city attorney's office. Oh, I'll, I'll propose it. You all have to make it. Um, and Supervisor Peskin has it. Um, it basically clarifies the area up 150 feet from its current location. It talks about not beyond the western edge of the wave organ. So if Supervisor Peskin, if you can make that, um, introduce that amendment, I think it will clarify um, where, what we're talking about. Um, I would be happy to do that. I did neglect, and I do believe that this is in the file, but, um, and it was referenced by one of the speakers, but I do want, uh, on behalf of Peter Richards, uh, who um, uh, was the creator of the wave organ, um, which interestingly enough was permitted in 1985, uh, by the Exploratorium in conjunction with Reckon Park, uh, who contends in his letter uh, dated uh, January 27th that the proposed expansion would actually uh, fundamentally adversely impact the wave organ um, because of where the sheet piles would go, that it would no longer work, and uh, he has made that clear to Reckon Park staff to no avail, so that letter is in the file, but I am happy to move the minor amendment on the last page of the legislation at um, line four that just says not beyond the western edge of the wave organ um, and respectfully would like to uh, make a motion to send the item as amended to the full board with a positive recommendation. On these motions, first the motion to amend and then the motion to recommend as amended offered by Member Peskin. Vice Chair Preston. Preston, aye. Member Peskin. Aye. Peskin, aye. Chair Melgar. Aye. Melgar, aye. Madam Chair, there are three ayes. Okay, that motion passes. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Clerk, do we have any more items in front of us? Oh, wait, we do. We have one more vote. I've okay, heard so that there may be a President request Peskin to rescind gonna, a vote. Yeah, yeah. So I would like to make a motion to rescind the vote to continue item number three. Okay, just a moment. I'm going to jump forward in my notes. Okay, just, bye. <laughs> Thank you. That's nothing to do with you. <laughs> For everyone who's here in the chamber with us, we are still in session and conducting business. So if you're leaving, please exit quietly so we can take care of these last several steps. At this time, Madam Chair, I'm recording a motion to continue agenda item number three to February 5th. And we're hearing a motion now to rescind that. If you, On the I'm motion sorry, to rescind. Folks, if you could please be quiet. We're still conducting business. Thank you. On the motion to rescind, Vice Chair Preston. Preston, aye. Member Peskin. Aye. Peskin, aye. Chair Melgar. Aye. Melgar, aye. Madam Chair, there are three ayes on the motion to rescind the action on agenda item number three. Go for it. Madam Chair, Supervisor Preston, um, because of the length of item number seven, uh, the Deputy City Attorney John Malamit and uh, 
Anne Marie Rogers from the Treasure Island Development Authority were able to uh, propose some amendments that address the issues that I raised that are before you in hard copy as well as by email uh, that at in the long title at page one, line four, would clarify that the delegation is limited to future parks and open space, that the development and disp disposition agreement and the development agreement uh, require. Um, on page four at lines 20 to 21 clarifies that the Treasure Island Development Authority board designation of park improvements shall be for park and or open space only instead of for other potential uses. And at page five, lines one through four, adds new explicit findings that the TIDA board shall make for each park and open space. Uh, first, finding a finding of consistency um, with the uh, DDA and DA requirements. Um, second, that the planning department determines uh, that the park and open space uh, are in compliance with the planning code special use district in addition to finding consistency with the general plan which was already required at page 5 line 17 through 19 adding a sunset clause on the delegation uh, in five years from the effective date unless the Board of Supervisors extends it at that time or prior thereto. And that is acceptable to Tida and thank you to John Malamit for his quick work and I think that addresses the underlying concerns that I was raising. So we would amend it and then send it out as a committee report with items one and two. Correct. On the motion offered by Member Peskin that the ordinance be amended and then recommended as amended as a committee report for consideration at tomorrow's board meeting. Vice Chair Preston. Preston, aye. Member Peskin. Aye. Peskin, aye. Chair Melgar. Aye. Melgar, aye. Madam Chair, there are three ayes once again. And aye. then, Madam Clerk, I, Madam Chair, I would like to make a motion to rescind the vote on item number six, as I understand from the city attorney that they do not believe that they can prepare this in one week's time, will do their best to prepare it in two weeks' time. So I would like to rescind the vote on a one-week continuance and ask for a two-week continuance. So that would be to the meeting of February 12th. Correct. First on the motion to rescind, Vice Chair Preston. Preston, aye. Member Peskin. Aye. Peskin, aye. Chair Melgar. Aye. Melgar, aye. And then on the motion offered by Member Peskin that the ordinance be continued two weeks now until February 12th. 2024 land use on that motion vice chair preston preston aye member peskin aye peskin aye chair melgar aye melgar aye madam chair there are three ayes once again okay and now i understand that there's no further business before the no committee. further business thank you so much we're adjourned do you want to read the immemoria <laughs> <Thank you. laughs>